Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Two Abdullahs, where we are going to be debunking Farid Responds. We are going to be showing you the takia. Yes, that word that we never use. We decided to actually use it this time because the stuff that he's doing is so egregious. It's so bad. It's so disgusting. It's so dishonest that we had no choice but to use the T word. Okay. We never use the T word <laughs> on this channel. The You'll never word. ever hear me saying takia and neither does Abdul But this time <laughs> we use the word. And if you're going to see why we use the word, when you when you watch this episode, you're going to see just how much copy-pasta, copy-pasting, dishonesty, hiding of slides, t taking out important parts that we presented, and basically not really being honest about the response. So anyways, we'll, we'll, let's get into it. How's it going, Abdullah Gondal? Hello, hello. Welcome back. It's, uh, it's been a nice two weeks, but we're back again with the, the Kia of Farid response part two. I see you guys like the first part and uh, we're going to carry on from that. I think we covered like 15 lives. We're going to bump it up to about 30 today. We got about 32 slides, lots of videos, lots of fun. You'll see numerous examples of this guy just talking absolutely nonsense he doesn't understand neuroscience and he's thinking that hypnopompic seizures are dreams anyways we'll get to that but first thing uh how is my voice signing to you guys today uh, because i know last time the voice was uh, the mic wasn't working i forgot to switch the source but does it sound okay to you guys let me know in the chat yeah just let us know if the sound is okay for both of us and um we'll need to do a test as well with the playing of audio clips uh, do you want to show? Oh, you did share your skin. Can I add it to this? Ready to yeah, yeah, yeah. We can start. Yeah. All righty. Uh, so we we were on la, uh, slide uh, 53. We're going to go to about 85-ish now. So we have like 30 plus slides. Uh, There's probably going to be a part three, but uh, let's get started. So this one, what is going on here? Uh, Farid accuses me that I'm pretending to respond, i.e. I am hiding the slides or uh, he... So he accuses me where uh, I show this hadith about uh, Muhammad's uh, head lowering and then his lip smacking. And then he accuses me that I don't show the full argument. And whatnot. So let's see what he actually does. This is his video. Let me know if you can hear and if there's any issues with the volume. So Whatsoever. So once again, what I strongly recommend is after seeing a counter refutation, return to the refutation itself and see if the points were properly addressed take so can you guys hear the uh the volume and everything is good both through the playback as well to me it sounded a little bit low but i was able to understand was um is the volume on the youtube player maximum it is oh there yeah, you go. okay perfect yeah. all right let me just go out of here youtube's very finicky when you're in these slides somehow oh yeah 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 okay we're going to start it now. Take, for example, the claim that the Prophet, peace be upon him, had an issue with lip smacking, which is apparently a sign of epilepsy. We made this response about a year and a half ago. Yes, there is a difference. Moving your lips is just what we're doing right now when we're talking. Lip right. smacking would be something like... Okay. That's lip smacking. And you can, you can go and Google some, some videos to see what lip smacking automatisms are. Again, this proves that Gondal has never seen a patient seize before. He's talking out of um, inaccurate uh, knowledge and inaccurate reading. 
So what he uses uh, is yeah. a misinterpretation of the hadith, again, because he's a non-Arabic native speaker. And, or maybe he's lying. There's it, always it a chance that, that he... It doesn't even say that in English. In English, it says moving my lips. It says uh, okay. moving, uh, the Prophet used to move his lips. So it so, doesn't say... This, the word smacking isn't even in English. <clears throat> then he's lying. Yeah. He's trying really hard. He's trying really hard. <laughs> but carry, carrying on towards... Uh, the, the report says that um, a verse came down that says don't move your tongue in in the way uh, what, what does the verse say um so a verse is actually revealed the hadith is speaking of a verse that was revealed that tells him to stop moving um his tongue in such a manner and after that he completely stops um uh, moving his tongue and mouth in such a manner um the report says that he sticks his head down now, let's check out how this was dealt by Dr. Jalaluddin al-Tabari himself. This proves that Gondal has never seen a patient seized before. He's talking out of um, inaccurate uh, knowledge and inaccurate reading. So, what he uses uh, is yeah. a misinterpretation of the hadith, again, because he's a non-Arabic native speaker. And, or maybe he's lying. There's always it, it a chance that, that he... It doesn't even say that in English. In English, it says moving my lips. It says uh, okay. moving, um, the Prophet used to move his lips. So, it so doesn't say, this, the word smacking isn't even in English. Then he's lying. Yeah. He's trying really hard. He's trying to read. All right. Hey, why don't you play the rest of the clip? You know which part I'm talking about. I mean, this part right here. <laughs> but carry, carrying on towards uh, the, the report says that um, a verse came down that says don't move your tongue in in the way uh, what, what does the verse say um so a verse is actually revealed the hadith is speaking of a verse that was revealed that tells him to stop moving um his tongue in such a manner and after that he completely stops now do you know why he paused at that specific point well, it's because he assumes, and by the way, he's right. He knows that you're not going to return to the original video because, hey, let's face it, most of us are just too lazy. And again, yes, he'd be right because most of us are quite lazy. We're not going to bother to return to the original clip. Unfortunately for him, I'm, I'm not most people, and it was a direct refutation to me. And now thousands of people are aware that he wasn't able to deal with my all right uh so as you guys heard that farid is going on and on about accusing us of somehow hiding his argument he plays this clip uh about the lip smacking hadith and then he says something now what's interesting is he accuses us of hiding his argument but interestingly when you actually go to the original he shows you just the clip part but he actually doesn't show you the the whole segment which precedes the video uh, it comes after the video all here so we actually end up showing the hadith the hadith that he's talking about that we actually didn't show when we were scared to read we actually highlight three different aspects or two different uh, snippets of it from bukhari and we show that you no know, clearly like we talk and discuss this in detail you can go back to it. it's a whole 10 minute segment he omits it and then accuses us of not 
uh, dealing with the argument when we actually did deal with the argument. As you can see, he just showed you this video, but then he did skip these three slides. And then we actually showed multiple uh, patients as well and a bunch of other things in a long discussion. But uh, point being, Farid omitted all of that and then accused us of lying. Not only that, he also hit slide 251 from the original Epileptic Prophet series, which was dedicated to Muhammad Lorzinghead. We would discuss that as well. Uh, at the same time, while he's pretending, uh, telling us that we're pretending to respond, uh, has he not realized that we made so many multiple refutations uh, and then he failed to answer a single one of them, like the Sadar claim that we responded to or your cousin lying about me diagnosing Muhammad or your cousin not knowing about Muhammad's dementia or you, your cousin and you claiming no one noticed Muhammad was crazy or the ringing bells or the Napoleon part or the optional seizures. The point I'm getting to is it's, uh, he's already um, ignored so many of the major points and stuff that now he has the audacity to accuse us of pretending to respond when we actually did respond and did address those things in detail. And as out of habit, he just omitted those. Uh, but uh, let's go forward. I uh, just want to check again in the comments. The sound is fine. Yep, sound is good. All righty, perfect. Perfect. So uh, um, there's going to be another important point where we're going to come to discuss about miracles and how usage of miracles is uh, exploited by apologists to uh, somehow make it seem that miracles are this irrefutable way of proving your religion. Uh, so we're going to see what Farid said first, and then we're going to come down to Sam Harris's small little uh, snippet as well. Is Kitab al-Maghazi. Now, this one's interesting because this is one of the earliest, earliest books available on Muhammad. In fact, the Kitab al-Maghazi predates Ibn Ishaq even, I believe. Okay. And, yeah. No, it doesn't, but whatever. And I wrote the names of the three scholars that translated it. So they say that... Uh, when the messenger of God returned to his house, he sat at his door and we sat with him. A convulsion seized him until we thought that he had a revelation about it. He regained his composure and sweat dripped from his brow like pearls. So basically, he is arguing that this is proof that the prophet, peace be upon him, had epilepsy. But now let's read the rest of the report from earlier on in the page to get a clear idea of what is going on. It says... When we had turned to the Prophet at dawn, and while we were with him seated, we mentioned the time of Uhud and those who were killed among the Muslims. We mentioned Sa'd bin Rabi'a until the Messenger of God said, Come with us. So we went with him, and we were 20 men until we finally reached Al Aswaf. Jabir said, Food sufficient for one or two men was brought. The Messenger of God put his hand in it and said, Take in the name of God. We ate from it until we were full. And by God, it did not appear to us that we had touched a thing. Then they brought us ripe dates in a saucer from the first fruit or a little later. And the messenger of God said, in the name of God, eat. He said, we ate until we were full. And I looked in the saucer and there remained approximately what was brought in it. All right. So as you can see in this report, a miracle is being mentioned when food is literally being multiplied and a basket of food is sufficient for 20 people. Not only that, but the amount of food didn't even lessen. Oh, and by the way, I don't even accept this report as authentic because the author of the book himself is not. 
So sorry, I would cut out there at the end. He was going to say the author of the book of Akedi is not authentic. Anyways, this is a very interesting point. Muslim apologists are used this very frequently, and this is very important to understand from a historical perspective as well. All right. <clears throat> so first part, uh, miracles. Uh, there's a huge discrepancy between the earliest source, the Quran, and hadiths, which appear 100 to between 200 years later, 150 years on average. And so the Quran, when you demand miracles from Muhammad, uh, has constant repetition and reminders that hey, Muhammad is not a miracle worker. He's a messenger of God. He's a warner. He's not going to do any miracles. And then there's just barely a vague mention of the moon splitting. And in the beginning of Surah Asra, Subhanallah, Yasra, Abdihi, Laylan, Masjid, something about that Muhammad rode the beast uh, to heaven and whatnot. But that's about it. Uh, so we have this huge discrepancy where in the Quran there's next to no miracles and Allah actually rebukes the Meccans for demanding miracles. In the Hadith you have uh, flying horses, you have uh, talking trees, talking stones and all sorts of things. Uh, so there's a mismatch and uh, the sources removed about 100 or so years later. So nobody uh, would ever accept these, uh, no historian would ever accept these miracles. It's just uh, absurd. And uh, this is a good point by HL, <laughs> why Muhammad was always hungry if he could do that. <laughs> That's funny too. He was too. so hungry, he used to fast and he used to tie mm -hmm. a rock to his stomach. And then, no, sorry, he was even better than the companions. The companions used to put a rock. He used to have two rocks. Like he mm -hmm. was like extra, extra hungry. It was like two rocks tied to his stomach, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, just to like show people like, oh my God, I'm doing more than you have an age. Yeah. Anyways, one more thing. What was the size of the basket? Was it refilled? Tricky, right? Like, it's just like, like how did it fill up? Right? Exactly. It's, it's a very vague thing. And I mean, the whole point he's making that I don't accept this hadith and he makes a big deal out of it. We'll see in the next slide. It's all a facade and an yeah. act he puts up. But uh, yeah, no historian would accept miracle reports hundreds of years more or removed from the event. That's just absurd. People will mock you for doing even making that claim. Uh, in fact, Muslims are always making the claim that, you know, the Gospels are written like 20, 30, 40 years after Jesus. How can you use them as evidence? The Quran, in fact, itself is traceable to bear like a few decades after Muhammad and the Hadith are 100 so years. Uh, anyway, when someone quotes a religious source, it does not imply they accept everything in the said source. When there's a, let's say, if a secular person or a non-muslim is reading islamic sources and then they're trying to analyze them and they're quoting bukhari or muslim to imply some historical knowledge about muhammad it doesn't automatically imply that if they're accepting that bukhari has some knowledge that it also implies that it has uh, he has to accept the moon splitting and miracles contained in the same book as well that's just absurd uh, now what's funny is using miracles as a defense for islam backfires it will always backfire uh, because there's better evidence of miracles that exist that contradict the Islamic theology. Uh, we have the 500 people witnessing Jesus, just to give you an idea, the sun lady, uh, the Guru Nanak moving the Kaaba, and these are much more recent as well. They're miracles of the Ghulam, Ahmad Qadiani, and Satya Sai Baba. And in fact, some of them even have living eyewitnesses that are still alive that will testify, not a handful, tens, thousands, hundreds of people that will testify to these miracles. Uh, He's and just it's a just, restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a very lazy way to by trying to defend Islam uh, generally, because basically any criticism you le level against Islam, the Muslim apologist can simply resort to, 
oh, well, uh, there's this XYZ miracle hadith. How do you explain that? Therefore, Islam is true. So your argument has to be false, right? And this is just lazy argumentation. This reflects on the person's uh, misunderstanding about the historical method and their own uh, ignorance in the broader scope of things about how other religions and other miracle claims have come out throughout history. Uh, again, uh, if you want to really, really get academic about it, I would highly recommend... Uh, listening to Dr. Richard Carrier or Dr. Bart Ehrman uh, talking about historicity of miracles in, in light of the actual historical method. And they're making fun of the Christians like 10, 20 years removed the sources and this guy is saying hundreds of years removed and it's okay. Uh, but yeah, using miracles is, 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 is not a, a good argument from a historical perspective, especially when you're uh fundamental thing the hadith are hundreds of years essentially removed from the source but anyways i want to show this funny little clip uh i don't want to show the dr carrier dr bartram in 30 40 minute lectures uh, but for just a small little snippet of what i'm trying to say to convey the sentiment sam harris does that beautifully here it's muted entire yep. doctrine we consider christianity the entire doctrine is predicated on the idea that the the gospel account of the miracles of Jesus is true. This is this is why people believe Jesus was the Son of God, divine, etc. This textual claim, this textual claim, is problematic because everyone acknowledges that the Gospels followed Jesus' ministry by decades, and there there's no extra biblical account of his miracles. But, but the the truth is quite a bit worse than that. The truth is, even if we had multiple contemporaneous eyewitness accounts of the miracles of Jesus, this still would not provide sufficient basis to believe that these events actually occurred. Well, why not? Well, the problem is that firsthand reports of miracles are quite common, even in the 21st century. Um, I have met literally, literally hundreds at this point of Western-educated men and women who think that their favorite Hindu or Buddhist guru has magic powers. It, all, the powers ascribed to these gurus are every bit as outlandish as those ascribed to Jesus. Uh, now I, I actually remain open to evidence of such powers, but the, the, the fact is that people who tell these stories desperately want to believe them. All to my knowledge lack the kind of corroborating evidence we should require before believing that nature's laws have been abrogated in this way. And, and people who, who believe these stories show an uncanny reluctance to look for non-miraculous causes. But it remains a fact that yogis and mystics uh, are said to be walking on water and raising the dead and flying without the aid of technology, uh, materializing objects, reading minds, foretelling the future R right now in fact, all of these powers have been ascribed to Satya Sai Baba, the, the South Indian guru, by an uncountable number of eyewitnesses. Now, he even claims to have been born of a virgin, which is not all that uncommon a claim in, his, in the history of religion. Or in history generally, Genghis Khan supposedly was born of a virgin, as was, was Alexander. Apparently, parthenogenesis doesn't guarantee that you're going to turn the other cheek. Um, but Satya Sai Baba is not a fringe figure. He's not the David Koresh of Hinduism. His followers threw a birthday party for him recently and a million people showed up. So there, there are vast numbers of people who believe he is a living God 
You can even watch his miracles on YouTube. Prepare to be underwhelmed. Uh, I mean, it's true that he has an afro of sufficient diameter as to suggest a total detachment from the opinions of his fellow human beings. But I'm not sure this is reason enough to worship him. Uh, in any case, so consider, as though for the first time, the foundational claim of Christianity. The claim is this, that miracle stories of a sort that today surround a person like Satya Sai Baba become especially compelling when you set them in the pre-scientific religious context of the first century Roman Empire, decades after their supposed occurrence. We have Satya Sai Baba's miracle stories attested to by thousands upon thousands of living eyewitnesses, and they don't even merit an hour on the Discovery Channel. But you place a few miracle stories in some ancient books, and half the people on this earth think it a legitimate project to organize their lives around them. Does anyone else see a problem with that? Well, as you can see, that's a very uh, interesting small uh, three, four minute video by Sam Harris. But he brings out a really interesting point that even uh, <laughs> even contemporary like miracle witness accounts uh, would fail to qualify any actual uh, standard of uh, actual evidence. Uh, and we see them abundant even today. And the fact that people would use them would be the same as some guy like for using Muhammad some hadith from the seventh century or oh, this food was multiplying or oh, the food was talking or oh, the people heard the trees talk once or come on guy come on that's not how it works uh, it makes you look silly because it just shows that farid himself has not actually surveyed the uh, other religions properly read about their miracles the some of them are actually pretty well preserved man like not gonna lie some miracles they're they got way more evidence behind them than some just a random piece of oral hadith or uh, thing about moon being split in half or some guy like making food talk 100 years after he died. There's actual some some even if you look at historical miracles, you'll see that there's some statues with carvings that were made on site for the miracle and how historians analyze that and whatnot. But uh, so uh, we got through this point. This is a recurring point. So I'm not going to repeat myself again and again when Farid brings the miracle thing up because again like I don't know if he doesn't get the point that a hundred years later it's just nobody will buy the story yeah one more thing just to repeat what we said in previous episodes just to remind people uh, but Ehrman has also a test a litmus litmus test for this as well where he says whenever he's studying a certain text you know he looks to see whether the text has a theological benefit behind it is there a theological reason for this point that's being made? And so if you find, like, for example, there's a certain verse in the Bible or whatever that seems to be trying to show a certain thing, then you can try to understand that this is why it was added or this is why it was written. For the same, from the same perspective, when we look at the Hadith, if we're looking at miracles in the Hadith, it's clearly being used to prove Prophet Muhammad's prophethood basically that mm -hmm. he's a prophet or whatever right whereas if it's something like that's like they would have seen as meaningless like he's looking up and his eyes are rolling in his head or he's hearing bells ringing those are not things that are being used to make a theological point there's just matter of fact this is what mm -hmm. is described there's mm -hmm. no there's no incentive to to make those things up there's no reason why they would lie and make up that he heard ringing bells 
it's yeah exactly besides the point and that's like one of the strongest evidences here but anyways mm-hmm. yeah just to kind of repeat that point for people that didn't see the previous episodes that that we can also kind of put medical claims to the side because they're being used to prove things like they're used the obviously in favor of the religion right so well, half of them don't even make sense, sense. Uh, <laughs> yeah like, like the, even in the comments like the food talking <laughs> and he's feeding a bunch of food well then why is there any food shortage or food problems ever in muhammad's yeah, house like, when like he you was, said uh, why is he hungry <laughs> yeah exactly like when when the boycott happened and everyone was starving because he wanted to be a prophet and and uh abu abu talib was still protecting him his mm-hmm. uncle was still protecting him to the point where the all the other tribes said we're going to boycott your tribe right and and so everybody's starving now because of muhammad both muslims and non-muslims the entire tribe is starving they're eating the bulk of trees but apparently he can make food come out of his hands and water come out of his hands in a desert like forget the well of zamzam you have muhammad's fingers <laughs> you can see how it's this it's made up to like fill like a specific sense, right? yeah yeah they're not consistent yeah. they don't follow through all right so anyways uh But Farid said that, oh my God, I don't even accept this hadith. This is a miracle for Islam because the author is like uh, not uh, authentic and he makes this big thing. But dude, like the never ending food and water have been mentioned in so many other Sahih narrations. Uh, I'm not going to read them at all to you, but they're in Bukhari and Muslim and Tirmizi. And you can read this all in detail and search him up. But uh, Farid already believes in miracles of unending food and water. It makes a big deal of the same miracle being mentioned in Kitab al-Maghazi. Remember when we talked about corroboration, not only is Maghazi being corroborated by other Sahih Hadith, weak Hadith if corroborated by Sahih Hadith are generally accepted. This adds to the idea that Kitab al-Maghazi may indeed have some Sahih Hassan content. We are not arguing about the authenticity of the Islamic corpus on the same wavelength. Farid is bound to the Sunni view. We go outside and beyond it. And the next point is even interesting. In his video, he said that Vakidi is inauthentic. I, well, yeah, wait, 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 go back for one second. Mm-hmm. I just want to expand on that a little bit more. So for people that don't know, the the Maghazi, and Sean Anthony talks about this in his book on Muhammad. These are like some of the earliest the, Maghazi battles. These are the stories of the battles. These are some of the earliest collection of sayings we have about what Muhammad saying, not sayings, but like thing, these are the earliest collections we have of Muhammad's actions. And so this thing about Hadith being graded and authenticated and the Sahih and, you know, all of that Bukhari and Muslim, that came way later. If you want to go like, like Sean Anthony talks about the Sira Maghazi literature, he puts them together. He says the Maghazi, meaning the battles, and the Sira, they go together. They're like super early. And even mm-hmm. some of the stories in Islam, they have a lot more detail in the Sira, Maghazi literature. Like, for example, the Satanic verses. By the time you get to Bukhari, it's been like, it, it's like, it's like been heavily censored. The stories mm-hmm. become very palatable now. Yeah, that, yeah. You know, they basically, they're buying down, not because well, they mentioned the God, but because they were impressed by the Quran right. or something, right? Here's something interesting to keep in mind when we go forward. Remember this. The Islamic method, the hadith, the muhaddisin and their methodology is an ahistorical method. It's an ahistorical approach. No historian would ever base their analysis of historical literature like that. So keep that in mind. And secondly, you also remember that even if a hadith is sahih, 
Sometimes it is from historical standards absurdly stupid to believe what is said in the hadith, even if it's not a supernatural event. The point being is in, in the hadith literature, you'll find that these ulama say the hadith is sahih or this and this and this. But the guy who is narrating the incident was born 30 years after the incident. So no matter if it, the chain is sahih, man, the guy couldn't be alive. There's things like that, uh, attribution of things like that, that do happen. There's even for the many hadiths surrounding the moon uh, being split in half. Most of the narrations you find in the books, in like the six books, the primary narrators, most of them, except like Abdullah bin Masood, the others were born way after the event had happened. So they're hearing stories and then passing them on. Either they heard them from the prophet or somebody else. And this is an interesting thing where you'll see this in the coming slide, but this happens a few times. And even though the hadith is sahih, it is not historically valid. Hmm. And I'm just going to add one more thing, which is even as early as the seerah, theological points were being squared. Mm -hmm. They wanted even in the seerah to paint Muhammad as this innocent shepherd, not a merchant. So Sean Anthony mentions in his book that they downplayed him being a merchant in the seerah. Because again, why? Because Ibn Ishaq wanted to show Muhammad as being this ignorant man that couldn't, nobody's just taking care of sheep. I mean, how would he know the stories of the prophets and blah, blah, blah? He wasn't <laughs> a merchant dude that was traveling and, you know, hearing stories on his travels. No, 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 no. He was some innocent chef. So you, you find both of those like narratives in, you know, in the collections of Islam, but Clearly, one of them was downplayed for a reason, a theological reason. Right? Mm -hmm. Oh, we'll see right now. So, you know, like how Farid says that uh, uh, Waqidi, the author of the book, is unreliable. We'll actually get to the point. Farid is arguing from a very strict muhaddisin approach. And as you see here, uh, there is a paper written here. Uh, and they're talking about the fact behind the allegations al Waqidi was accused of them, an analytical study. So let's read. These are, uh, this is an academic paper and they say, the personality of the renowned early Muslim historian Muhammad bin Omar al-Waqidi has been disputed from the very first day he got recognition and fame in the second half of the second century of Hijrah. In fact, he was an outstanding historian. Now, tell me about this. Here you have Mr. Ganguteli Farid who is telling you that Waqidi is unreliable and there this person who is saying he's an outstanding historian. This is what I'm trying to tell you. The Islamic method is ahistorical. When you actually compare it, it doesn't jibe properly. Um, now, let's see. They discuss like why was he criticized so extensively. So uh, probably he was the first Muslim historian who talked about and applied the historical events and what were the root causes of their happening and finally analyzed their consequences. Despite all of these qualities, he was critically criticized by muhaddithin, traditionalists, what Farid adheres to. Due to not uh, due not to be following their rampant applied methodology in hadith transmission at the time, because Waqidi did not agree with the hadith guys all the time about their methodology and he used a different method, they all just said that he's not authentic or they criticized him heavily. Basically, he deferred from them in the issue of isnad, the chain of transmitters, and the acceptance of some historical tracts to people who were not authentic and fulfilling the merit of muhaddithin. Al-Waqidi massively quoted a huge amount of narratives from this kind of people. That's why he got harshly criticized by them. Nevertheless, there was a lot of muhaddithin who considered Al-Waqidi an authentic and reliable source for historical narratives. 
especially the profits campaigns. Uh, now here it says it's well known that most of Muslim historians consider Al-Waqidi a reliable and trustworthy source for historical narrations. That's why they're not reluctant to cite Al-Waqidi in their books where they do need him. So as you can clearly see that this assertion that Farid has given off is just him looking through the monocle of Salafi Wahhabistic uh, uh, lens and or this traditionalist view of Hadith. Uh, but again, like we discussed, that it's just not honest and not uh, give, doesn't give you the full picture. Uh, and we aren't bound to this thing. And we've been telling this from uh, from day one. But Farid somehow wants to pull us down to somehow abide by his traditionalist view, which again we're not going to. On the right side here, uh, it says Maghazi and the Muhaddithun, reconstructing the treatment of historical materials in early collections of hadith. Uh, it's by Cambridge University Press. You can see here, uh, it's an interesting point. Uh, Islamicists have been long interested in the historiography historiography of the Sira and Maghazi literature. Ibn Isaac's Sira was compared with Waqidi, and they've been compared with sections in Bukhari and other collections of hadith. It has often been observed that the materials constituting the Sira of Ibn Hasak or the Maghazi of Al-Waqidi, works which may for convenience but only with reservations be designated historical, are often the same as those preserved in collections of hadith, such as Al-Bukhari's. So again, this person is also saying that even though if you do claim that he's so uh, such a big liar, Al-Waqidi, well, most of his points end up coming in the Sahih literature as well. So he's not in terms of comparison, he's not actually making stuff up as the frequency claimed by traditionalists. Just anyway. to uh, uh, just to elaborate a little tiny bit here, um, just to make this a little bit more clear, Sunni Islam is a construction built by the scholars of Islam, and the scholars, quote-unquote scholars of Islam, are not entirely building this on historical methods, but based on what they think made sense for them. And this is an example where we have a scholar, Al-Waqadi, that he was criticized in, for certain reasons. They didn't like the way he was doing things. So that, just to always keep that in mind, always keep in mind that there's two different things going on. There's the Sunni Islam, which is a construction, and then there's the historic Muhammad, which we don't really know much about. But just keep that in mind. What we're, what we're discussing for most, most of the time, we're discussing the Sunni Muhammad. What is, has been reported according to Sunni sources and sometimes outside of Sunni sources like Shia sources and whatever. So we're building a more comprehensive picture here, but just always keep that in mind. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Exactly. exactly. Uh, like Farid is like you just said, is limited to the Sunni traditionalist view. We are not. In fact, the Sunni view itself is a historical. We go outside and beyond it. And by what ends up happening is he's talking on a completely different wavelength, completely different space about how to criticize and approach his machine. We are in a completely different wavelength. So he's kind of talking to himself and refuting straw mans as he goes along. Uh, all righty. Uh, here's an interesting one. Now, this is now we're going to pick up some really good, interesting lies. Uh, so look here on the left side. Uh, this is a book uh, called Muhammad, the Messenger of Islam, uh, compiled from traditional sources in Ottoman Turkish, Behaja, Amenadil, prefaced by Sheikh Nazim Adel Hakani, and Hisham Kabani, whatever this sheikh is, and focus and on this part here. Mm -hmm. Sorry, those are big Sufi sheikhs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but they're very well known. Again, like you're gonna notice again the traditionalist view, which Farid is looking through it, all of his through monocle versus a broader perspective. But 
Uh, this book clearly says here, this part. Okay. The Prophet's mother, Blessed Mother Amina relates, At the time I was ready to give birth, there was no one with me, neither man nor woman attended me, for everyone, including Abdul Butlab, had gone to make tawaf. I was alone in the house. Suddenly, there was a terrifying noise, and I felt great fear. Then a white bird alighted upon my breast, and my fear left me. I became calm, and no trace of pain or anxiety remained. Next, I was handed a cup of sweet sherbet. When I drank of it, heart filled with peace. Yada, yada, yada. They go on. They talk to these people. And she sees these ladies. And she's having a hallucination, a visual hallucination, right? So I did not show this exact book, okay, in the Epileptic Prophet series. Because it wasn't the main point. It was being conveyed through another post uh, in a blog, okay? So let's see what Farid had to say about it. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi Welcome to a new video. If you thought that the claim that Rasulullah had epilepsy was a desperate one, then wait until you check this out. You see, genetics play a role in epilepsy. And for Dr. Jaladin to make the case that Rasulullah had epilepsy, he wanted to argue that he has a family history of it. So in this video, he claims that Rasulullah's mother had visual hallucinations and that means that she may have had epilepsy let's check it out all right so on the top left you see about muhammad's mom so with uh, when we're talking about muhammad's mother and anything before prophethood you have to understand that there's not a lot of stuff written at that early on uh but what we do have we do have quite a lot about muhammad's mother seeing things so on the left side i'm just going to read it for you guys if it's so small uh the prophet's mother uh, when she was about to give birth nobody was with her uh neither man nor women attended Suddenly, there was a terrifying noise, and I felt great fear. Then a white bird alighted upon my breast, and my fear left me. I became calm and no trace of pain. Next, I was handed a cup of sweet white sherbet, drink of it, heart filled with peace. I had a tall woman approach me, so she's hallucinating. Then uh, another hallucination she has is she sees Hava, the wife of Prophet Adam, right? And then the wife of, I believe, uh, Pharaoh of Egypt. And then she sees Maryam, the daughter of Imran, too. Uh, all the while, the noises I'd been hearing became louder and stronger, and she's having these vivid hallucinations. So the response to this is very simple. This isn't even a real hadith. You can't find it in any classical sources, but Dr. Jaladin doesn't really seem to care. He found this in a blog, a blog that, of course, doesn't even cite the reference for this report. Now, you shouldn't really be surprised because this is the level of Dr. Jaladin. Farid, <sighs> that's just, I mean, as you can see, he's like, he found it in a blog. The blog doesn't reference this and no classical source. This is the level of like, as you can see, I have the book right here. It's in a book. It's written by some respected person who, when there's two sheikhs who've given a foreword for it. And this person itself is claiming that it's from traditional sources. If you want to do further digging to try to find the exact hadith that's pointless, you can do that because we have other narrations that you hid from the primary sources we showed again uh, they'll confirm this thing but the, uh what we're trying to point out that this thing here is in a book not just in a blog you don't realize that another thing is he says that the blog doesn't reference the source if you were to go down i don't know if you can uh, have to stop sharing this screen and then add my other one let me give me one second so that's the blog, okay? And if you go down all the way there where the story occurs, they, in fact, give you the source. You click here. It takes you to the blessed birth, the Mohammedan reality. You, If you want the PDF of this, you can go look. It's right there. 
lady spoke, I'm Hava, the prophet of Adam. So please stop lying to people like so shamelessly and so brazenly that I'm not sure. Like, there's layers to your lies. There's, it's like an onion. You peel one layer of a lie off, another one comes off. And there's so many that it's hard to even explain at times. You get lost in the web of lies. So he said there's no there's no sources, but the source was there and it actually linked to where the linked story it to. So like he's just not yeah. doing his due diligence, like dude. And then he accuses us of people not going back to the main source, not watching the video. We are lying about him. If anything, you realize from this this series so far is that all he's done is nothing but lie. Yeah, just, and I mean you said clearly. This is a story about Muhammad's mother. There's a very long time ago at the, at a point in time where there wasn't a lot of details. We're going with what we have from the Islamic sources. <laughs> we didn't make this up. Like, what does he think? We just made it up? Like, no, it's coming from your own sources, right? No. And yes, it's gonna be it's gonna be sparse. I mean, people were not recording these things about Muhammad's mom because she wasn't a cult site. Am I allowed to say that? She wasn't a cult leader? like <laughs> Exactly. Back then, it, she wasn't a significant person. So nobody's writing the hadith of Muhammad's ma mother and stuff. right? Whatever survived, survived in tidbits and little pieces. Can, and we, like can we, we call him Fraud, Fraududin? <laughs> Fraududin? <laughs> Fraududino, watch, guys. What he does next is even worse. Uh, but So to summarize what happened here, Farid accuses me of uh, using a referenceless blog. He says that it's A, in a blog, which is not just in a blog, it's in a book. B, he says that the blog doesn't reference the material, which it also does. So, he, <laughs> yeah. guy. He didn't scroll down all the way. Just, he just The only thing he might, he might say is he might go and claim it's not in classical sources. Honestly, I'm not going to go to that depth. That's besides yeah. the point. The point was you've messed up two times and two <laughs> simple claims about the same point and you lied. Yeah. Assalamu alaikum wa barakatuh. Welcome to... So let's go to the next slide. All right. So this is where it's so nauseating. And this is something very, very, very simple. I don't know why he did that. Uh, Farid says that uh, the hadith about Muhammad's mother seeing a light was just a dream. And that's it. And then I literally read the part where I, I said that she not only had a dream, but she then saw the realization of the dream when she was giving birth. He cuts that part out. Uh, and not only that, it's right there in the hadith or not in the hadith, but the screenshot I'm showing you from Ibn Kathir's book. Uh, well, let's see what he has to say first. On the right side, we see Sirah Ibn Kathir affirmed the same thing, and the visions of the mother who saw she bore me a light came from her that lit up the castles of Syria. Okay, so Dr. Jardin is quoting a report that says that Amina had a ru'ya. Do you know what a ru'ya is? A ru'ya is a dream. Now, this is how desperate these mortards are. They find a report that says that the prophet's mother had a dream. And they're like, oh, dream means ru'ya. It means vision. And therefore, she had visual hallucinations. And if she had visual hallucinations, then she probably had epilepsy. Let's... <laughs> All right. Did you see what he did there? He mentioned the part, the first part. Uh, that she had visions, and he just showed that part. We know that was the, the visions were the ru'ya. What we're talking about is the second part right here, that not only she had a vision when she became pregnant with him, 
that a light was emanating from her body, which the castles of Syria were illuminated. And then when she gave birth to him, she actually saw by her eyes a realization of just that. He, when you watch the original, I'm not going to go and show you each and every time. He literally snips the part out where I read that part and he doesn't show it to you. And that's just terrible, terrible dishonesty. The point has what happened here is Farid says she just had a dream. The hadith or whatever is in the screenshot clearly says she first had a dream. Then she actually saw the lights at the time of the birth. It is right there. At this point, I'm like, can he not read it? Like what happened there? That's a big blunder of a mistake to, you know. Uh, but yeah, that was a really terrible one. And you'll see what happens next. Now, in the original uh, series, after this, we had a couple of slides, uh, slide 21, 23, and 24. So there are three slides pertaining to the same exact point that Farid goes on to omit. All right. <clears throat> so let's read the next slide, uh, what he says first. Uh, and she heard voices that you are pregnant with the Lord of the Nation when she got pregnant stuff. Now, you see, there's nothing here that even says that there was a vision or a hallucination or anything like that. All of the report says is that it was said to her. So maybe Dr. Jaladin can argue that since we don't know who's saying this to her, perhaps it may have been an auditory hallucination. Did you see what he did there? The hadith said she saw it. It's not just an auditory thing. But anyways, let's keep going. He just skipped over the, the very important portion. That's the most that can be said. But more importantly, let's go back to the origin of this report. Ibn Kathir here is quoting Ibn Ishaq. And Ibn Ishaq doesn't mention his source for the report. There is no chain. If we return to Ibn Hisham, this is what we find. And of course, Ibn Hisham is quoting Ibn Ishaq. So Ibn Ishaq's source is this. Meaning... So some people claim and say now this is not a reliable source of information, ya Dr. Jala. Ah, oh, ha, ha, ha. it says so funny. So he's saying Ibn Ishaq is not a reliable source of information about the Prophet. Wow. No, and not just that. What he's trying to say is the specific narration that we're talking yeah. about, where the lights were coming out of her and yeah. all that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like I said, he hides the next few slides. On slide number 23, we showed a slide which explicitly was talking about this, which then in the answer was answered by two, three Molanas, cross-checked, and it's telling you that there were, in fact, scholars that have declared this uh, hadith as authentic and stuff. Uh, but let's see. Uh, here it says, is the following hadith authentic? Amina said to me, something tremendous shall come to the son of mine. As I was given birth to him, I saw a light resembling a comet that shone from me and lit up the necks of the camels of Basra. And when I bore him, he did not come out as other newborns do. Uh, he came up placing out his hands, blah, blah, blah. And then they say he declared the hadith authentic and Hafiz Haythami had declared the narration as reliable. And some of them say it's not. But the point you're getting is that these kind of narrations about Muhammad's mom seeing the visions they were in fact uh reliable and class reliable at certain degrees and certain levels by some scholars 
And the fact that A, he first lies about did she see just the dream and not the actual lights later on is just a complete, like he's completely messing this whole argument up. Uh, now, another interesting thing is hypnopompic seizures. Um, Farid Hyde's slide number 21, the very next slide, the very next slide after slide number 20 is 21, which he was critiquing. Why does he hide that slide? Because in the very next slide, we're quoting Ibn Saad's kitab, uh, Ibn Saad's tabqat. Uh, in here, look at this, the account of the pregnancy of Amina, it says, but I had a vision when I was in a state between sleep and wakefulness. Now, why is this important? Farid does not understand hypnopompic seizures. So what are hypnopompic seizures or hypnagogic events and stuff? Uh, sometimes when you're falling asleep or you're waking up from a sleep, uh, you can have hallucinations. Uh, hypnopompic hallucinations or hypnagogy, depending if you're waking up or sleeping. They have a relationship with epilepsy, okay? And as you can see here, the relationship between epilepsy and sleep is complex and by the way, is probably a common and well-described phenomenon. In this small observational study, we described arousal from sleep as the only or at least main manifestation of some epileptic seizures, Okay. Uh, and then they go on that four of them had temporal lobe epilepsy. Hypnopompic seizures accounted for 30 to 100% of their seizure types. Again, they go on that it's hard to diagnose and the doctors should be aware. Okay. They happen, these visions occur between arousals, waking up half wake asleep states. What did his mom say here? I had a vision when I was in a state between sleep and wakefulness. And then she goes on that a visitor came in and said, do you know that you're pregnant? I felt as if I answered no. And then they go on and talk and she has a back and forth with this. Okay. Farid seems to think these are just dreams. He doesn't understand that dreams are not just hypnopompic seizures. He's confused. He doesn't understand the point. So he makes a mess out of it. Uh, in fact, even on my initial slide that he omitted, it's written here that she's getting visitations from unknown being while half awake. What gets worse is, the next slide he emits. In slide 24, I literally spelled it out for him. All he needed to do was to Google hypnopompic hallucinations. He would have instantly realized we're not talking about dreams here. We're talking about ictal manifestations of seizures with complex hallucinations popping up in uh, Muhammad's mother. Uh, and even on my screenshot that he didn't show to people, it says, but Dr. Dida even points this out. Uh, Amina is described as having a peculiar nervous temperament, according to historical records. Between sleeping and waking, she used to experiencing being visited by spirits, which would imply that she was experiencing hypnopompic seizures. So Farid doesn't get the point. He doesn't understand the point, and he makes a complete mess out of it. Uh, and I literally put it in there. He just needed to just search it up once and he wouldn't be going off on this weird tangent. And even, even despite that, we clearly explicitly said we don't have enough evidence to conf like confirm and say Muhammad's mom had epilepsy for sure. Just that it's very interesting that she's showing these kind of uh, seizure-like or hallucinations and hypnopompics-like states and her son then ends up having epilepsy as well. It's a genetic factor. Anyways... So let's see if there's any more interesting comments, any questions, a little, any, anything to add. 
I think we're good so far. Okay. okay. Yeah, people are saying like it's almost at a point where he doesn't want to understand the point, and you'll see this again later. It's either he doesn't understand the point or he's just not capable of understanding the point, and you'll see this too. You know? No. It, and, it's, I find it interesting as well, to be honest, how he's like poking holes in the sealer. Like, to me, that's interesting because that's like your earliest collection you have one of the, you know basically about muhammad's life sure the scholars say you can't use sila for fiqh because fiqh you know rulings islamic mm -hmm. rulings about how to pray and blah 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 you can't use the sila for that but you can use it to learn about muhammad's life and it's interesting that even muslims are like poking holes in their own collections which is which is is actually quite fascinating in order to defend his prophet now he's trying to rip out parts of the story i mean same oh thing yeah with yeah. with the uh, the satanic verses, they're trying to pull things out of there because it puts him in an uncomfortable light. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I mean, this is already known. Even if you read the notes of Ibn Hisham and stuff, and how many renditions the earliest Sira book went through, and he even himself said that he omitted stuff that would make the prophet look bad. So it's a thing that early historians and Islamic historians engaged in. So you know that. <clears throat> but anyways, uh, now. Uh, keeping in line with the last point where he didn't understand uh, what uh, hypnopompic hallucinations or hypnopompic seizures can be, uh, he again doesn't understand what epigastric rising is and what it can entail. So, all right. Uh, this is also known as an abdominal aura. On the left side, it's a dictionary of hallucinations. This is a pretty cool book if you ever want to look at how many different types and weird forms hallucinations can take. It's fascinating to read it. Uh, but what we're seeing here is... Uh, other presentations uh, so of the abdominal aura include visceral-sensitive sensations such as abdominal discomfort, visceromotor symptoms presenting in the form of tachycardia, emoji and vomiting, and vegetative symptoms such as blushing and sweating. So remember this. With epigastric rising, you might have uh, blushing and you might be sweating. Now let's go to this side. And this, I'm going to remind you, this is not from Dr. Dede Korkut. This is from... It's, uh, it's a NIH. You can go and study this specifically as a clinical thing. Now, very important point. Uh, first, they say that the epigastric aura is felt in the upper half of the abdomen uh, with most patients uh, pointing with the palm of one or both their hands to a wide area between the end of the sternum. And so it's kind of like here where kind of your, your heart is, okay? Uh, all right, and slightly lateral to the midline, so kind of to the side too. Uh, now, epigastric aura is often initially described as pain, but on further question is rarely pain. It is a strange, difficult to describe sensation in that area from which the most common description I get is, if the organs inside are squeezed and twisted, other descriptions of emptiness, rolling, turning, whirling, tenderness, fluttering, butterflies, pressure, nausea, and all sorts. Uh, now, as you can see, this description of the uh, epigastric sensation is quite thorough, and it clearly says that the sensation of your organs inside your body being twisted and squeezed, right? And remember the, the blushing or going uh, pale or red and sweating. These are things that might accompany it. Uh, 
why is this important? Because as soon as you say that inside organs in the chest, uh, like the epigastric area, sensation of feeling and squeezing, your head goes should go to Muhammad saying that his heart was washed by angels a few times in his life. Now, what Farid gives the impression is completely different. I want you to understand that he completely omits the part which talks about if the organs inside are squeezed. He gives a washed down, uh, misunderstood uh, view of what epigastric rising is, and from that false assertion carries off. So today's video is about the allegation that the Prophet, peace be upon him, had an epigastric rising sensation. So epigastric is the upper abdomen, and basically it's a sensation that's rising upwards. It could be pain, it could be nausea, it depends on the patient. Now, for those of you that are familiar with the seerah, surely nothing comes to mind. There's nothing that comes to mind about the Prophet, peace be upon him, saying, I felt something within me, a rising sensation. There's nothing like that in, in the books of Hadith or in the works of Seerah. So as you can clearly see, he says there's no rising sensation. Again, that's not just the only sensation, Farid. Stop projecting your own ignorance of neuroscience onto this idea. It clearly says that it can also entail the organs inside being squeezed. So Farid gives a very simplistic explanation of it and then takes that uh, further. Let's go to the next slide. So today's video is... All right. Uh, now this is very, very interesting. Here uh, you will see something funny where Farid will talk about the chest splitting incident. Uh, and in his version of the uh, his version of my video, he condenses a 10 minute conversation down to one minute. Yes, I'll show you. And the way he edits it in a very malicious way to make it flow and seem like that's what I said completely distorts. And this was a uh, a form of uh, dishonesty or just, just completely mind-boggling. Like, how would you, like, why would you edit your opponent's arguments so maliciously and make him seem saying something completely different? But here, I'll show you guys now. In his own book. We'll get to that later. But let's get to this one. The chest splitting hadith, Halima incident number one. This first one on the left is from the life of Muhammad ibn Ishaq. So, uh, they said that uh, two clothed men in white have seized that Qureshi brother of mine and thrown him down and opened up his belly and are stirring it up. We ran towards him, found him standing up with a livid face, took hold of him and asked him what was the matter. He said, two men in white came down, threw me on the ground, opened up my belly and searched therein for what I know not. So we took him back to our tent. So what is this chest belly splitting accompanied by white figures? What is going on? What is the medical explanation for this? Dr. Dede describes the epigassing rising as a complex seizure episode with a combined visual hallucination and a visceral abdominal sensation of pain. This is a well-known phenomenon with epileptic patients' discharges. A discharge occurred in the medial or inner aspect of the temporal lobe of the brain. Muhammad was exhibiting the most frequent kind of visceral sensation associated with complex partial seizures, that of something disturbed his epigastrum. All right, so now let's just check out the hadith for ourselves and we'll inshallah come to a decision as to whether this is truly an, uh, an epigastric rising sensation or not. All right, so you saw something interesting. This was a one minute video and you saw that there were snips in the middle uh, and he was jumping slides quickly. This one minute 
or just over a minute video he condensed is actually from an original playback of about 10 to 11 minutes long. And I'll show you what on he did. Splitting Hadith, Halima incident number one. This first one on the So as you can see here, it starts as 110.29. And we go on for a while on this. Like we are still three, four minutes down the road, still on the same slide here. Still talking and talking about different variables, and you will get to know why. But Farid switches to this one. And then this one within a matter of 40 seconds. And you cannot tell me that you can condense 10 minutes of very important conversation that pertains directly to the points that are being made. Just cut them out completely. Absurdly bad at like editing it like this. It's pure dishonesty. I just was shocked when I saw that. Like that is one of the worst examples I've come across of like misrepresenting your opponent's argument. Chest splitting. But my point is like it starts from 110 all the way goes to here. 121, 120 something. And this guy condenses all of that into one minute. All right. <clears throat> so uh, let's see what Farid's point was. When the chest all right. Uh, but now let's just check out the hadith for ourselves and we'll inshallah come to a decision as to whether this is truly an, uh, an epigastric rising sensation or not. Some months after our return, he and his brother were with our lambs behind the tents when his brother came running and said to us, two men clothed in white have seized that Qurashi brother of mine and thrown him down and opened up his belly and are stirring it up. We ran towards him and found him standing up with a livid face. We took hold of him and asked him what was the matter. He said, two men in white raiment came and threw me down and opened up my belly and searched therein for I know not what. So we took him back to our tent. Wait, so let me guess. Did Halima's son also have epilepsy? Is this some sort of visual hallucination by Halima's son? Is that what's going on here? All right, so this is a very, very silly point, and this is why he skipped the whole uh, 10 minutes in there, is when we're discussing the argument, we're talking about all these nuances that these points Farid seems to pop up into existence. We, in fact, discussed this exact issue directly in the original. Uh, so what is it? Let's listen. First, I'm going to explain it to you. Uh, Farid says that there were other children around the age of Muhammad at the age between four and five-ish years of age that were also present there that allegedly saw Muhammad getting taken by these two people, thrown on the ground and getting his chest cut open. Like the kids actually saw it. But then interestingly, he then says, well, did the kids also have epilepsy? What he misses out on, this is very important, is that um, at that time, it was... Muhammad's two foster parents that were also there that reacted to this whole incident and they never suspected their own child, their own son to be crazy or their own son actually have seen this. In fact, all of the things the foster parents said indicated that they suspected Muhammad actually was suffering from some form of demon possession or some form of affliction. This is the point which Farid omits. Why? Because if you have a five-year-old kid who says... Uh, hey, I saw Muhammad do this versus the adults are this, reacting to the same situation. You're supposed to go with the reaction of the adults because that's how common sense would work. Because children, 
are not, let's say, reliable in giving testimony. And I'll explain it here. Uh, and uh, one more thing, one more thing. After this incident, they sent Muhammad back as well. There was a, like, this mm -hmm. skit. Yeah, exactly, right? We discussed all of this. This I'm just repeating myself, but what Farid did, he just skip, 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 10 minutes condensed into one minute, and he presents it like we never mentioned all of this. But uh, we, in fact, did go into the exact discussion. Why didn't uh, uh, Muhammad's foster parents suspect their own children if their own children are seeing things too like this? Or, you know, it doesn't make sense. Uh, because children of the age of four to six are just not reliable at giving testimony. A five-year-old telling his other five-year-old uh, friend that he sees two white people easily turns into, oh, I saw them too, mom. And that's how children are. Uh, well, let's see. We discussed this, and I'll let's show you what Farid actually hid. Splitting hadith. Halima incident number one. This first one on the left is from the life of Muhammad ibn Ishaq. So uh, they said that... I'm going to show you just a little bit of it. I don't want you to sit down and watch the whole 10 minutes. If you want to go back, uh, watch the full discussion, you can always go back to the original from uh, part one. That uh, two clothed men in white have seized that Qureshi brother of mine and thrown him down and opened up his belly and are stirring it up. We ran towards him, found him standing up with a livid face. Took hold of him and asked him what was the matter. He said, two men in white came down, threw me on the ground, opened up my belly and searched therein for what I know not. So we took him back to our tent. Here's something interesting. Halima's husband, his father said to me, I am afraid that this child has had a stroke, so take him back to his family before the results appear. The other translations say that he is demon-possessed. I think the word is also he's afflicted. They thought that Muhammad just got possessed by a demon or something, and they wanted to take him back to his mother. This is the first time his chest was cut open, and then they were washing his heart. Point is, it doesn't even make sense for God to send an angel to wash his heart. Absolutely no sense, right? Uh, then, later on, you see that they picked him up and then took him to his mother. Now, think about this. Back in the day traveling is a big ordeal so whatever happened to muhammad had to have been of enough seriousness that his parents or his foster parents decided okay time to pack our bags get on top of a camel and go all the way to mecca bring this child back to his mom had to have been something serious right so they took him to his mother who asked why we had brought him back and when i'd been anxious for his welfare and desirous to keeping him with me i said to her halima saying this to his mom god has let my lens than my duty i am afraid that ill will befall him so i've brought him back to you as you wished she asked me what happened and gave me no peace until i told her when she asked if I feared a demon possessed him. Now, look, this is the conversation between Muhammad's mom and Muhammad's foster mom. And they're both talking about the possibility of this child being possessed by a demon when he's a baby. Okay, because he had this episode of his cut, cut open. And then Muhammad's mother, how she saves the situation or tries to make sense of it is like, oh, don't worry. No de demonic power will come over my son because when I gave birth to him, my vagina shot out white lights. And that is literally her comeback. Okay. Now, on the right side, you see uh, Sira ibn Kathir. And I'm just going to read it out to you. This is the same thing, but just a different uh, narration. At this, his father and I rushed outside towards him. We found him standing there and his face color was pale. What's wrong? And then he said, Halima, I'm afraid my foster son has become afflicted. So this is where his is afflicted. They took him back to his family. And then in this one, they say, are you afraid from Satan? So Satan possessing him. Satan will get to him. And she says that because of my experience. Muhammad then says in another version, and this might be a second chest opening. It's in a later down the bottom that he sees that there was a black cloth that was taken out and there were some birds and whatnot. Anyways, point being made that two adults have suspected and had a conversation with Muhammad's mother that, hey, your child might be crazy. Very, very significant development. Let's get on to the next uh, one. So we have Halima uh -huh. chest splitting incident number two. So on the bottom left, you All right. Uh, as you can see that what we were discussing there was very important where, so to give you an idea what's happening, people that are present at the time of the event, 
all the adults there they're like yeah something's wrong with muhammad we should take him back to his mom he seems like he's afflicted with some demon possession might be some 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 disease or something yeah farid 14 centuries later no no yeah that's the thing it, he farid said no it's the kids that actually saw the guy and they actually might have had epilepsy so this is what I'm trying to tell you. You have to use your common sense sometimes and think about this. There are adults there that are all suspecting Muhammad of being crazy. They're taking him to back to his mom. Or having health issues of some sort. Or right? some sort. And this guy's like, well, no, they actually, the kids saw the, the, the white men and therefore we have to trust the testimony of the kids. And then he cuts out all this discussion pertaining to the adults talking amongst themselves and suspecting what might be wrong with Muhammad. And this is the problem. Like the way he approaches this, this whole issue is just, just dishonest. And that's what I was trying How to point he, out. This, I mean, this point is so strong. How would he get out of it? You have <laughs> basically from your own sources, like the parent of Muhammad discussing with the caretaker of Muhammad, both of whom loved Muhammad, that, Yo, something's wrong with your kid. <laughs> like, how do you, how do you defend Muhammad from that? You can't. Like, it's like okay. To give, to give another idea is like, look at this. If Samir is sitting here and I'm sitting here, you know, and we have both two kids. One's my son. One's his son. And you know, they're playing. And then one of my kids comes back. He's like, "Oh, Baba, you know, this the other kid got attacked by these two men in white, and we all go running out to check on the kid." And like he's standing there with his face flushed. He's totally okay. Our first instinct is not going to be that he actually got attacked by two people in white and they cut his chest open and they actually washed his heart. No. <laughs> yeah. You that don't just like a a Exactly. It, it, it definitely sounds like, you know, okay, let's make this a little cooler, the story. Let's add it. <laughs> You'll see what happens and why this is interesting. Next slide. <laughs> so, uh, what ends up happening is what Farid does is Farid uses this hadith as well. And he seems to imply that this hadith says that, you know, Gabriel was there and Anas was there. He's reporting from Muhammad and the boys came running to his mother and said that Muhammad is being murdered or whatever. Right. And then Anas said, I myself saw the marks of the needle. I want you to first watch what Farid says. Now, for those who actually care about authenticity, here's an actual authentic hadith that you find in Sahih Muslim. And Another thing, I, like I mentioned earlier, just because it's authentic doesn't mean it historically makes sense. Which Anas bin Malik is narrating that Gabriel came to the messenger of Allah, sallallahu wasallam, while he was playing with his playmates. He took hold of him and lay him prostrate on the ground and tore open his breast and took out the heart from it and then extracted a blood clot out of it and said, that was the part of Satan in thee. And then he washed it with the water of Zemzem in a golden basin, and then it was joined together and restored to its place. The boys came running to his mother, i.e. his nurse, and said, verily, Muhammad has been murdered. It's not the Prophet, peace be upon him, describing something he felt, but it's actual children seeing this happening. Unless they were all having visualizations, we cannot use this as evidence for epigastric rising sensation. They all rushed towards him. His color was changed. Ennis said, I myself saw the marks of the needle on his breast. Okay, so there's so many layers to this guy's lies. Like, it's, at first, he doesn't understand what epigastric rising is. Uh, but anyways, 
now he's using a hadith which he claims to be Sahih from Sahih Muslim, which is he uses a guy who's narrating, which is Anas bin Malik. Okay, remember this Anas bin Malik is born in 611 or 612 AD after Muhammad had received the first revelation. Okay, when did this chest cutting incident happen? It happened when. Yeah, Muhammad was five, so in 575 AD, you have some guy, Anas, who was born 36 years after the incident actually happened, and he's narrating, I don't know this story from, he heard it either directly from the messenger, because he doesn't specify it here, or he heard it being spun around from other sahabas that might have heard it from Muhammad. And then this guy, 36 years after his birth this alleged thing happened he heard his story when he was what 10 12 when he was given to muhammad you're hearing a story of 45 to 50 years later guy who was born in 30s you can't use this story to overwrite all the adults that were there that's so so is anna saying that when he met Muhammad, now, many years later, he saw needle marks on him, which were from the heart surgery when he was a child? <laughs> Maybe Muhammad was doing drugs, dude. <laughs> drugs the thing is, this, that, right? this description, A, I couldn't Didn't find it by anybody. Tattoos? Didn't they use needles for tattoos and other things? Maybe Muhammad was like, I don't know what, like, there's a more <laughs> obvious like explanation, I'm sure, than he had like some... There's a lot of things like he took parts in wars. He could have got slashed across the chest. There's so many different. Then we have no description of like what type of marks they were. Were they scars? Were they rays? Were they to get like, did it look like an actual uh, surgery scar from like a, like a, like a heart surgery from these days? Like it's so vague. Right. And Anas is, seems to be the only one that I find, at least I could find that mentioned this and nowhere else, because if you do read other descriptions of Muhammad's body, they talk about his chest being clear with one and like one line of hair or something. And there's a lot of them and he had a lot of vibes and they talk about his bodily built and stuff. But this is the only guy who mentions it, uh, at least in my knowledge. I mean, now, come on. At this point. It's like, it's so obvious. He's just trying to be cool and defend his prophet. Yeah, yeah. Like, yo, I saw the needle muck, man. Like, like it's 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 obvious, like, manufactured. Like, it's obviously manufactured to make the story cooler. But these are, this is an amazing point that Anas clearly wasn't around for this incident. Mm-mm. These two little boys said, we, we thought Muhammad got murdered. They went outside and they saw him standing there. Is... <laughs> like actually claiming that they saw him getting murdered and he's just standing there and then well here's the thing like this is story is coming to Anas 45-ish years after this actually happened and then it's coming to us through Muslim which is another 200 years down the road so do you understand that it things by the time they get to Anas are gonna be twisted and I, like I said in this description here I point out uh, that uh, let's just read it. This incident occurred in 575 AD, i.e. the first chest-splitting incident when Muhammad was a child. Anas was born in 611 AD. 611 minus 575 equals 36. It is impossible for Anas to have witnessed this. He was never there. Anas is narrating a story he heard from the Prophet or someone else when he was at least 10 years old. Funnily enough, you'll see Farid use this exact point to help his side of the argument and not catch on to this blunder he made here. 
We'll watch that in a, in a little bit later. Uh, he was given to Muhammad as a servant in 622. So this kid was like only around with Muhammad for 10 or so years and before he died. Uh, so anyways, just because it is in a Sahih collection does not mean it is historically valid. Notice how in all earlier narrations shown, the one we were talking about, it was two white beings coming down or two birds. There were always two. And they had two men in white clothes that thrown Muhammad down. But 35 to 45 years later, when Anas hears this, it's only one Gabriel. Right? So the details have changed even. Uh, then another thing is like Muhammad had already convinced people that the mole or the wart on his back was the seal of prophethood. And that looked like a red tumor with hairs coming out of it and all sorts of things. So I'm not surprised that he had convinced or told Anas, like you said, oh yeah, these marks on my chest, they're the needle marks from when the angel cut my heart. Yeah, sure, dude. Uh, but anyways. And one more thing, um, just I, I think this ties in really nicely. Other than the fact that they clearly didn't know what was going on. I mean, clearly, if this was epigastic rising they wouldn't there's no way they would have known this no the other thing no. which ties in really nicely is something the brain does which is confabulation when mm -hmm. you experience something that you can't explain your brain will make up a reason right mm -hmm. it'll actually invent a reason and from all from his perspective this is probably what really happened he probably thought angels came and did this shit to him because he's going through some some like storm in his brain right mm-hmm Exactly. The left hemisphere definitely makes confabulations with these kind of things, for sure. A hundred percent. So like this would have happened and Muhammad would have then made up his brain, would have like tried to make sense of it. And this story came out that the sensation of my organs being squeezed because of the seizure is actually the angel washing my heart, as we saw earlier in the description of what epigastric rising is. But like you're right, how would they have preserved this thing so precisely and to get another interesting lie that you're going to uncover but Farid didn't tell you is it wasn't once it wasn't twice it happened four or five times this thing and this is the only time that anybody had claimed to have seen it a very big interesting point is uh, when we come to the next slide the chest splitting itself in fact we showed this in the series was not once it might have happened at Halima's twice or thrice and instead of that, there was three or four more instances that once it happened when Muhammad was 10, another time at the cave of Fira before the first revelation, and then there was another one before the Miraj, and there's a suspected other one as well. And on all those occasions, we have no real witnesses about the angel cutting the heart open. Now, another thing is if Muhammad is telling his story to Anas and all these guys later, while he's already experienced four of these uh, instances of this epigastic rising, he can be back projecting, like Samir said, his own explanation of his constant experience of this twisting of this organ thing. And he made this explanation up that, you know, these people came, cut my chest open and washed it. Uh, but anyways, let's watch what happened here. Uh, again, this is, uh, like I said here, uh, Fadi does not understand what an epigastic gastric aura is and then goes further and omits a very important part of the argument which was the recurrence of this chest splitting sensation multiple times throughout his life this type of aura is common we see the same in muhammad's case all the other times apart from halima's toddlers no one else seems to have witnessed the angels ripping muhammad's chest open so for example you have let's say five instances nobody 
sees the angels cutting his chest open and ripping his heart out and doing the surgery. The one time they do see the quality of the witness is a five-year-old child. Like, come on, you don't, don't put your eggs in one basket. Perfect. Can so I when you were talking about, can I, can I uh, just show something? Sorry, before. Yeah, you yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so something I want to show here. This is Seeker's Path. This is a web Islamic website. How many times was the Prophet Muhammad blessed chest open and why? They say the splitting of the chest took place four times. This is an Islamic website. Mm -hmm. and, and it mentions a bunch of times. I won't go into details there, but like it's literally four times according to this Islamic website. <laughs> exactly. And it's not even that. We actually showed not just one Islamic website. I think we showed like three different websites for the same point. And he omitted all of those. He just presented it as that's the one time with Halima. That's it. That's all. No, no, no. There was more. And that's what adds more to the argument and the main point. But like I said, Farid, as his habit is, he does not want to show you the full argument. And What's up quick. with Muhammad and uh, splitting things? <laughs> He's splitting the moon. His chest is being split. <laughs> uh, all right, let's let's watch this. How many times was Muhammad's belly split? So let's see. We have two fatwas here. And this is from Darul Darulumdiyoban, India and Again, you can f find the links of this uh, in the description and whatnot, and I'll release these as well. Number one is in his childhood when he was under the influence of Halima. Then it happened again at the age of 10. Then it happened again when he was assigned prophethood in the cave of Fira. And then it happened again when he went up to the Mehraj. On the right side, we see the same thing. What we're seeing is that this epigastic rising sensation is, again, an aura preceding a generalized or a large seizure-like event that other people, as we saw earlier, also experience. In fact, it is very common. Muhammad had that a few times. And in fact, these are the ones that were documented. There's narration that said they might have had it even more so. Let's go to the uh, next slide. And now we have uh, Islam Web. Uh, another fatwa was saying that... Uh, when he was a young boy, was split up. Then second time, when Angel Gabriel came to him in the cave of Fira. Then at the age of ten. So there's a lot of uh, lot of narrations that say Muhammad actually had this sensation occur to him from childhood numerous times. Alrighty. So as you guys saw that that was a very integral part of the main point that it didn't happen once. It repeated again and again and again, and that's the whole point. It's a common uh, aura. This happens. Uh, Farid showed you just one of it and that too, he made a mess of it and uh, we saw what happened, but again, he didn't show you the full argument. Let's go to the next slide. All right. So this is a very, very interesting part of the uh, uh, presentation. We're getting to the part about the heavy camel. So one thing before we proceed is of all these symptoms reported about Muhammad's epilepsy, there are two things that the Islamic apologists uh, cannot let go of, or they think that cannot be explained rationally. One is the heavy camel, and the second is the buzzing of the bees. Uh, in fact, what I did was I didn't fully, fully explain these things in the main series as well, uh, due to time constraints and a bunch of other things. Uh, and I held back some very key uh, points for the reason being because I knew that the Islamic apologists 
due to their nature, are going to choose to die for these two points to be true as supernatural. In fact, they will be super uh, arrogant as well uh, in making those claims. Uh, and in fact, when you do survey the things Muhammad did experience throughout his uh, his revelatory episodes, the two things that they always point out are supernatural. Proof of that it's actually real revelation is the camel or the heaviness and the uh, <clears throat> the other one, which is the buzzing of the bees. Uh, but we'll uh, completely destroy and deflate those points to the point where they will never ever use them as evidence from Muhammad's revelation. So, uh, but anyways, we're coming to the point about the camel and the seizures. So uh, let's see what I actually said. And then let's see how Farid omits a very, very important part of the argument out and completely strawmans me. Oh my God. All right, 168. Now this is interesting. Remember that camel hadith. Like the Muslims say that the camel was standing and then it sat down because the weight of the revelation. No, it wasn't the weight of the revelation. Like I said, you have to connect the missing parts of the Hadith in different narrations, different corpuses. When you come together, you see that Muhammad uh, was heavy upon him and there was fainting upon Muhammad. Okay, And in another narration, there was that he was also perspiring. Then the other narration say that the camel would uh, would be standing and sit down, but then get right back up. So what was happening? Was the Quran getting heavy, then light, then heavy, long, the modulation of the camel weight? So what's more likely is given he was fainting, given he was perspiring, uh, and Dr. Ali Sina will explain in the video next, but before that, we also find out it's more likely that this was a seizure, like other seizures that Muhammad had, atop the camel. And Dr. Abbas Sadriyan, actually, in his book, straight away saw, saw this and interpreted it as a seizure and not that it was the weight of the camel. Then there are other narrations that talk about this this weight and they are even more bizarre where one says his legs broke but then one hadith says that the neck neck of the camel snapped. So I'm like, well, Muhammad was holding on to the thing and it probably seized too hard and it just snapped the neck or something. Like, it doesn't make sense, right? Uh, it doesn't. Uh, but we're going to just uh, see Dr. Ali Sina explain it. And uh, we'll keep continuing with the fainting. All right. So as you can clearly see the main point, and I'm explaining that he was fainting on top of the camel, and that led to the sensation of the heaviness and the camel not understanding what to do. Because if you're sitting on top of the camel, your weight shifts all of a sudden. We'll get to that in a second in much more detail. But as you can see that I'm explaining this point in a lot of detail and spending a bunch of time on it before the video of Dr. Alicina starts. Look what Farid does. So the hadith that we're talking about today is a narration that you can find in Musad Ahmed and Musad al-Hakim in which Aisha says that when the revelation comes down upon the Prophet, peace be upon him, while he's upon the camel, the camel itself would kneel down, would go down to the ground due to the heavy weight of the revelation she recites Inna so here is the response of a doctor ali sina sometimes he said when he's riding a camel the camel stops and and, and knees down yeah muslim use that as evidence that the power of the camel made the the uh, the power of revelation made the camel kneel because it was so 
So as you clearly saw, what happened was Farid skipped the whole explanation before that, where we're actually telling you that the fainting was the most likely explanation. And then he snips out Dr. Alicina on the side. And he's creating a straw man, and you can see how he does it. And this is how it works, where he'll just, you make five points, he'll take two points, and then the main three points he'll throw out and make a completely different argument that is a straw man, and then go refute that in his own little imaginary world. Uh, but even when he's doing that, he f fails terribly. But let's go forward and find out. So what are we talking about when we say heaviness? Muslims have been saying this, oh, he actually got heavy, and this is proof of burden of revelation like Farid does here too. This is not proof of burden of revelation. This is a very well-known effect called the dead weight effect. In fact, if you were paying attention... This whole camel incident was mentioned in the fainting subsection of the Epileptic Prophet series for a reason, because fainting can create this dead weight effect. Now, what am I talking about? When somebody's awake, uh, even though they're not aware, consciously their bodies, uh, their muscles, their core muscles, their muscles in the body are actively pushing up to hold your body weight up. When you suddenly go uh, unconscious or faint, all of that body weight, all the, the body weight, your body weight being held up by the muscles goes suddenly down. Your mass isn't actually increasing, but because your muscles aren't holding you up now, you will, to anybody else carrying you, will feel significantly much more heavier. This is called the dead weight effect. In fact, you can see it here, the difference between carrying a conscious and an unconscious person. Uh, so when a conscious person is being carried or picked up, their core often contracts and their muscles tense in an effort to make them a more manageable package. If you're injured or rescued by someone, you will likely wrap your arms, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but when you're unconscious, that idea of dead weight comes into play. Your limbs will likely be limp and swinging and you're you're not holding your body weight up and your center of mass becomes more dynamic and it'll push down. This is very well understood. It's uh, If you want to, you can pause, read here. There's a lot more written on it. You can read about it so much more, but it's a very simple point to understand. Uh, you can experience this with children as well. Like if a child is awake, you pick him up, a five-year-old child, versus when he's completely sleeping and passed out, you will feel him to be much more heavier. Uh, now, what happens is if Muhammad is sitting on top of the camel and he suddenly faints, his weight will suddenly change. There will be shifting of his weight. So when the camel will feel that or sense that, it will move to adjust. And this was somehow perceived by, obviously, the 7th century Sahaba and Mr. Geniuses like Farid as some burden of revelation. But uh, in fact, it was not. Now, Farid doesn't understand the the dead weight effect or... Uh, if he does, I don't know, because we did mention this explicitly in the presentation, in the same section, in the slides right before the video. Uh, as you see here in Baharul Anwar, it says, and as for the faintness which used to seize the Prophet until he was heavy. Uh, on this one here, he fainted from what he fainted from due to the weight of the revelation. Uh, that fainting hit him due to the weight of the revelation. So what's interestingly, what's happening is it's not revelation that is the cause of heaviness, okay? It's that he's fainting and that's creating that sensation of heaviness that the Sahaba are misinterpreting as heaviness. 
And this is very interesting and a very, very key point to understand. Now, now the whole... The whole absurdity takes you another level when you actually see a video, a 20th or 21st century video of what this looks like, this maldistribution of weight on a camel. And then you read the hadith at the same time, you realize that this is completely absurd to see this as revelation. By the way, by the way, like, shouldn't he have sunk into the sand as well when he was making revelations? Like, like the Messenger of Allah is having another revelation. I can't see his body. <laughs> like, doesn't make any sense. Like, like, if he got heavier, he should have got heavier when he was on the ground too, right? And like, mm-hmm. create like a like a gravity well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like he's a bl- Muhammad turns into a black hole and warp space time around. <laughs> that would have been some, impressive. Some antimatter, yeah. It's warp uh, warp drive, bro. That's how we traveled to the. Bar- it, only, it only happens on a camel. <laughs> it doesn't happen anywhere else. <laughs> Uh, but anyways, now what we're going to f- focus on next is the next slide, which is very interesting, is here on the left side. This is part from the original series. Uh, and this is from Ibn Sa'ad Tabkat. Uh, we can ignore the first two. Uh, we're talking about his face would turn ash in color. He would be drowsy like a drunkard. But in this section here, I saw the revelation come down upon the prophet while he was on his camel. Then it groaned and its front legs became entwined until I thought its shanks would snap. Then perhaps it would kneel and perhaps it would stand. And it was doing this up and down thing. It was moving around. It wasn't sure what to do. It's like I said, a dynamic movement in some narrations, right? What does this look like? Farid and all these Muslim apologists will, will claim this is heaviness of revelation, but in fact, uh, this is what's happening. Well, the point I'm trying to come away here is, is this a heavy guy, like like a fat guy that leaned forward. Yes, yeah, <laughs> increased weight or this in presence of an increased weight or maldistribution of weight or this guy does not know how to balance his weight creates this uh, camel going in and out. His things, if you notice in the video, go into the sand. It's trying to recover, right? Eh? Exactly. And if yeah. Muhammad or somebody faints while riding a camel, this is somewhat what would it look like. Uh, Again, to 7th century Sahaba, this would be interpreted as, uh, <laughs> as, as the weight of revelation. <laughs> well, and it's, it's to people like Farid too. But again, this just shows you the, the shallowness of their approach. And I mean, yeah. yeah. So anyways, Muhammad feigning on top of the camel is a very dangerous thing and could have seriously harmed him or the animal. Uh, in modern days, patients with seizure disorders would be prohibited from driving or riding animals. Alas, in the past, this was not the case. In at least the 7th century Arabia, smart Sahaba took it as a revelation. Now, remember this point that I'm mentioning here. We will come back to this false analogy fallacy of Farid again later, and you'll be laughing at how silly his reasoning skills are later on. So basically, they should have taken away Muhammad's license. We'll watch. We'll see. Oh, but you see how the camels, he tries to get up and it goes in. It's not an exact representation, but it's just to give an idea of what it would have looked like. 
All right. Now, another point here. This is Dr. Abbas Adrian. Uh, he was on video multiple times throughout the main Epileptic Prophet series. His qualifications and a quick summary is here. This is his book. He actually wrote a whole book about Muhammad's uh, epilepsy. As you can see, it's called The Sword and Seizure. I didn't feature the book uh, again in the series because he was already in video. So it's kind of redundant to put him in video and then his book again. It's the same thing being repeated. Uh, but in his book, he instantly, when he sees it, he also says that if Muhammad was atop there and he might have shook or jolted, as he says, uh, because these seizures derive from the left temporal lobe, shaking is typically confined to the right side of the body. Shaking can range from mild to severe, but uh, is sometimes absent altogether. In at least one hadith, it is reported that Muhammad's shaking was severe enough to jolt the animal that he was rising. And he uses this hadith to analyze it in a way where he thinks that this might have been his jolting where he might have pulled the animal or he jolted and the animal would have changed direction or weight and he might have reacted to that as well and here he says i witnessed the revelation of the prophet while he was on his mount the animal bellowed and twisted its leg until i felt they would break this went on until the Veda revelation eased and when it did he was soaked through with sweat now this is a very important aspect in our initial original series we've gone through this uh, as well that sweating at the time of a seizure is a very good indicator uh, of uh, autonomic nervous system activation. When the seizure starts spreading in your brain, it starts going to the parts of the brain that control your uh, things like breathing, sweating, heart rate, and stuff. And when a seizure spreads, you can have a spike in heart rate or a drop in heart rate, flushing, pallor, vasodilation, vasoconstriction, which could lead to these kind of sensations. Uh, and this is a very important description that is included in the hadith that he was sitting on the camel he is also sweating a lot all right now it's going to get interesting now we're going to go to a part where now that we realize that farida actually straw man the main argument which was that he was most likely fainting atop of the camel and that could have been the best explanation and the most likely explanation for the sensation of heaviness uh farid then goes on to this whole tangent of dogs versus camel sniffing and even throughout that, he seems to uh, not be capable of representing the scientific community fairly and how he portrays the studies. Uh, so let's find out what he says, and then we'll go. This is a very funny part. Oh, strong revelation. So intense. So intense revelation. But the fact is that when you are having uh, epilepsy, animals around you, many animals around you, sense it. Now they, they train ca uh, cats and dogs, sense it also. Now they trade dogs for epileptic people who senses before the owner himself that they- Falls down. Yeah, he fall, falls, exactly, and warns it. So the animal senses the symptoms, probably through smell or something, knows that his epilepsy is coming and warns the owner. So the camel most likely have felt this the epilepsy coming. All right, let's stop right here. First of all, these claims are unsubstantiated because of insufficient data. According to an article entitled Dog alerting and or responding to epileptic seizures, a scoping review, we find that this review of scientific papers has revealed that this topic remains poorly investigated. Studies were mainly retrospective anecdotal reports with surveys that were prone to subjectivity or case studies with a very small sample. Moreover, neither the training status of the dog nor its function were specified in all reviewed studies. 
It appears that appropriate empirical evidence that dogs can alert or respond to epileptic seizures is still missing. Further research is needed to better understand the characteristics of that determine a dog's suitability, the aspects of reliability and specificity of an alert for different types of seizures, the mechanisms behind the alerts, and the nature of the outcome of using dogs in context of epilepsy. All right, so this is a very interesting bit where Farid uh, uses a paper from 2018, although he uploaded this video in 2022. Now, that's very interesting. Uh, when you actually go and do the research, you'll find that there's not just one study that exists on this particular matter. There's, in fact, many. Now, what's happened here is there's like six, seven, eight, nine. You can even pull out 10. And most of them, especially a lot of them, are after 2018. And they still tell you that, in fact, no dogs do detect seizures. Uh, and then they've even identified specific compounds using dogs. And they even have studies about uh, untrained dogs uh, detecting them as well. Uh, but what Fareed does is he takes that one paper from 2018 and then doesn't show you any other studies and then uses that one paper to project this whole mountain of assertions about a topic and completely fumbles like terribly. And you'll see why. So. Uh, did you know that we now have empirical data for untrained dogs being able to detect seizures? We were even able to identify the organic molecule menthone and uh, some other ones as biomarkers for seizures, guess what, using dogs. Uh, all this research is in fact available, but Farid just showed you one study, while many newer ones have demonstrated the phenomenon to be true. Now, if you notice, I'm going to play the video again. Notice the name of the author before we go to the next slide. So strong revelation, so intense, so intense. I told. If you see on the right here, uh, Amelia, Amelia Catala, that's the name of the author. It's published December 4th, 2018. Let's go to the next slide. Same author, okay? Uh, published, this seemed like in 2019. Okay, after that one. Dogs demonstrate the existence of an epileptic seizure order in humans. Uh, okay. The question whether a seizure order be transversial name of the study was to test whether trained dogs demonstrated cancer that may discriminate a general epileptic seizure order. The results were very clear. All dogs discriminated the seizure order. Interesting. Same author a few months later. Hmm. What's going on here then? Here we have another paper, September 2020. Canine detection of volatile organic compounds unique to human epileptic seizures. Uh, here we see literature accounts of service dogs alerting patients prior to the seizure are a mix of historically poor quality data and confounding diagnosis. So what did they do? They collected, looked them up, uh, and what they say is uh, sweat samples of 680 total observations were collected. The dogs had a 93.7% probability of correctly distinguishing between ictal and interictal sweat samples. That is very fascinating. Uh, in the non-epileptic seizure population. Uh, dogs identified the unique seizure scent presence before 78.7% of all seizures captured at a probability of 82.2%. A significant number of seizures appear to be associated with the unique scent presence prior uh, to the clinical onset of a seizure. As you can see here, and this paper is from 2020. So what Farid has done, he's just done terrible research has manipulated the scientific research and you'll see in going forward it gets worse uh we were talking about menthone right here's another paper epilepsy and the smell of fear 
in our canine sensor detection research involving a specific volatile organic compound associated with human epileptic seizures. Uh, and they go on to detail that it's the same uh, pheromone with fear. And they find out at the bottom, let's just say this, identified samples of either fear or seizure sweat with a sensitivity of 82% and a specificity of 100%, no false positive from among the multiple choices offered. Additionally, there was a 92% agreement between the members of the canine scent detection team. Uh, while this hypothesis testing study is small and deserves replication, it confirms that the canine assistance seizure scent detection team consistently and accurately identified fear-scented sweat as a seizure, implying we see menthone is both common in both conditions. Now, we've now learned that uh, epilepsy and epileptics do have a specific odor associated with their sweat. And we know that Muhammad would sweat profusely when he would be getting the revelation. And there are numerous hadith about uh, his sweat being collected by the Sahaba. Now, is I haven't come across a special uh, smell profile of, a, of an epileptic patient's sweat. Uh, but, I mean, it's very interesting. It's just a side point here that a menthone, a minty compound, is excreted in epileptic sweat, and other compounds obviously is going to mix and turn into some form of some some scent. And this is what might have been the cause of his difference in uh, smell of uh, smell of his uh, sweat. But yeah, that's a very very uh, interesting point. Yeah, it is. It's interesting for sure. Yeah. Guys, if you like the video, do thumbs up the video because so more people can see it. Please do that. Oh, thank you. And let's go to the next slide and we'll see some more of his uh, ignorance and manipulation of uh, scientific research. All right. One second. Let's grab in something. All right. So uh, what is going on here? So let's see what Farid does here. Now, there are many other issues that come to mind. One of them is, let's assume that all this stuff is correct and that dogs can do all of this stuff. Um, but those are dogs. What does that have to do with camels? Even if we assume that dogs could sniff out seizures, why assume that camels can do the same? So, uh, very interesting. Farid uh, goes on to say, well, if uh, dogs can... Uh sniff out seizures so why can camels do the same now we don't exactly know the camels can or cannot sniff out seizures but on the right side uh if you check uh this is i believe university of michigan or university of chicago and in their animal diversity database this is from there uh <clears throat> camels also have uh well-developed olfactory senses that are extraordinarily strong and sensitive Camel nostrils are extremely sensitive and can detect odors over long distances up to three kilometers away. So yes, Farid, it may have something to do with that. It's just unfortunate that you were just so, so uneducated about the topic that, and your research skills are so poor that this is what we have to deal with. Um, now, <clears throat> going forward to the next slide, Farid then goes on to a tangent, a complete tangent about training dogs versus untrained dogs uh well let's play the video and see where he's going now dogs are trained to react the same article states 
Among 13 service dog training centers interviewed, training methods varied, but reward-based training techniques were applied if a dog began to alert in order to reinforce this behavior, and training could take six months to two years to complete. So what does this mean? Did they train the camel of the prophet for six months before it was ready? What? So now you'll start to see he completely loses the plot and he goes on the slippery slope of he makes false assertions because he's using one paper and misrepresenting. And off of that, he keeps going on a slide of bad assertions and fallacy after fallacy and logical fails you'll see in the next bit. But like he said, well, the dogs have to be trained. Again, Farid is using that same study still from 2018. But as you can see here, uh, 20th June 2021, it was published on July 30th, 31st, 2021. So just last year, actually, on the dot almost, uh, this was published. And it's about <clears throat> the untrained response of pet dogs to human epileptic seizures. Like I said, Farid does not fairly represent the corpus of scientific research. Uh, and the bottom, we'll just quickly read. Our findings suggest that seizures are associated with an order and that dogs detect this order and demonstrate a marked increase in affirmative behavior directed at their owner. A characteristic response of all 19 dogs to seizure order presentation was an intense stare, which was statistically significant across the pre-seizure, seizure, and post-seizure phase when compared to control orders of non-seizure origin. In the conclusion of this paper... This study set out to scientifically examine anecdotal reports of seizure anticipation behaviors by untrained pet dogs and hypothesized that the trigger mechanism for these reported activities might be some form of odor that is unique to seizures. Consistent with this hypothesis, the result of this investigation provide compelling support for the contention that pet dogs anticipate epileptic seizures, consistent with an innate response to the impact of an olfactory trigger mechanism, okay? And these biomarkers, olfactory biomarkers, are directly associated with epileptic seizures across their three phases, pre-seizure, seizure, and post-seizure, okay? So what I'm trying to tell you here, and what Fali doesn't understand, and I don't know if you understand this nuance or not, the ability of the dog to detect the seizure based on olfactory uh, senses is distinct from the type of response you're gonna get from the dog, okay? What is being said is every, most likely every dog can smell the order. It can detect the change, but then they don't know how to react based on that perception of that order, okay? And for getting the right response each time and having an effective seizure dog, you'll need to train them. But the ability to predict uh, or smell the seizure still exists in pet dogs as well that aren't trained. It's just that the response they will give will not be the best or the most appropriate had they been trained. Okay, This is a very interesting one that he, nuance I don't think he understands. And again, like the, this paper clearly shows that untrained dogs can in fact detect it. And this is published in 2021 versus the study he's using from 2018. All right. And now we're going down the hole of Farid just going berserk. So, so basically, just to make it clear... I mean, he just what he googled the first article he got and he picked the oldest one. Like, what what kind of research is this? this is, it, why even bother like saying this isn't valid? And then even if it is valid, it's as if he knows it's valid, but he just didn't want to admit it. 
it's it <laughs> yeah if you're gonna use yeah. science, yeah. use science don't don't cherry pick he loves cherry picking he, he loves it he loves it <laughs> i mean if you go to google scholar and you like see your dog there's like seven eight things that pop will yeah. pop up and he had to have gone through them like oh i don't like these six or seven but i like just that one i'm gonna pick that one <laughs> and then based yeah. off that i'm gonna make false assertions and it's just mm -hmm. terrible but anyways let's go now this is where it's just gonna be like it, he doesn't make any sense he's going down a slope where he stops making sense what about this narration when the prophet peace be upon him rode on the horse of abu talha oh let me guess I'm sure that the horse of Abu Talha was trained as well, just in case. I always thought that they didn't even know what epilepsy was. So you hear what kind of stupid point. This, it just makes no sense. <laughs> so what he's trying to say is, and I'll quickly summarize it. He says that uh, dogs can only detect epilepsy if they're trained. Uh, therefore, uh, if Muhammad's camel detected epilepsy, it had to have been trained. Uh now that implies the Sahaba would train the animals Muhammad was riding. Therefore, here's a hadith about Muhammad riding a horse. Therefore, that implies they would have also trained the horse. What was it makes no sense. So let's go through and break it down for you. And this is because he makes the first false assumption that you have to be trained. And then he goes off as his false assumption down the slope. Uh, but anyways. For either source, the camel will only react if it was trained like dogs by the Sahaba. We know that this is false, as pet dogs untrained indeed react to seizure order, as we just saw. Farid utilizes that false assertion that if the camel reacted, it implies it had to be trained like dogs for months or years to have been able to detect anything. We know that camels have a very sharp sense of smell and may be able to smell the seizure odor like dogs, all the more research is needed to confirm the olfactory detection ability in camels. Farid had also concealed the fainting atop the camel discussion, which is the most likely explanation to build and refute a straw man. Now what he does is Farid brings a random hadith about Muhammad riding a fast horse and nothing happened on that occasion. Therefore, the horse had to have been trained by the Sahaba just in case like the camel. So, as you can see, there are multiple layers of assumptions and assertions, logical leaps in this that make no sense. So uh, one can easily state that the Sahaba would have noticed horses and camels are not the same animal. Maybe one needed training and the other did not. Or camels don't require training like dogs at all. I'm just joking, but you get the point how there are many hidden leaps of assertions in his faulty reasoning. What we have learned so far is Farid's consistent ability to uh, even rep misrepresent scientific research. And you'll see a terrible false analogy next. Uh, but anyways, now we're going to go to the next slide. And this is just gets funny. I remember I mentioned earlier uh, when I was showing you the video of the guy and the lady almost falling off the camel and the camel almost falling into the the floor and the maldistribution of weight was back then the Sahaba saw this as revelation, but it's dangerous to let this man continue. Now watch what Farid does. It's truly bonkers. Okay. Yeah, there you go. Car driving is the same as camel or horse riding in the seventh century. And this analogy just blew me away from Farid. I'm like, guy, you, you cannot make such 
terrible faults in basic reasoning. Like that. By the way, guys, do you know that if you actually had epilepsy, it's quite unlikely that you would be able to drive a car. Most countries won't even give you a license unless you've been seizure free for like six months to two years. You know why, right? I mean, if you get a seizure while driving, you could potentially die. Of course, another thing that we know is that the Prophet, peace be upon him, was receiving revelation all the time. He would be having seizures constantly. And what's really interesting is we don't find people preventing him from riding a camel. In fact, when he's sharing a camel, he's usually the person that's riding in front. Imagine being in the car with someone that constantly has seizures. Would you even let them drive? But wait, it gets better. So, uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know what to say. I, I don't know what to say to that, dude. He, they, he didn't apply. He applied for the driver's license and apparently he got it. So, I, I, I guess Muhammad, the committee of Arabia gave him the driver's license, I guess. <laughs> it just makes no sense. Like, oh, uh, like you said, yeah, like, what, what, did he take his camel riding test before? Like, <laughs> did they make sure he was seizure free? Well, no. it's like Beach said, uh, camels are sort of like self-driving cars. Like, do you really need a license <laughs> for just, a camel? Uh, yeah, you don't. Uh, <laughs> but anyways, the point is, it, anybody with two bit of logic can see that you cannot compare 7th century people riding camels or horses to people driving cars in the 20th or 21st century. You cannot compare medical precautions taken by 7th century Arabs versus 21st century people these days okay and if they can't even perceive the medical problem properly in the 7th century how are they expected to have the proper response in light of her medical knowledge of the 21st century this is a great example of a false analogy fallacy yet the simple wisdom has not dawned upon Farid I'm sure there were no camel riding tests or camel or horse riding licenses being handed out by the Medinan authorities that would be suspended upon seizures. And the funny thing is, he says it himself. He's talking about licensing being suspended, but he can't seem to realize that the analogy doesn't work. Uh, now he claims that why did the Sahaba not stop Muhammad from riding a camel? They thought he was a prophet. Of course, they assumed the revelations were timely planned by Allah, so they would never be meant to hurt Muhammad. So they would not be scared about a revelation coming to him atop a camel or a horse because they would say, hey, it's not a big problem. And the few times that we do get, it could have become a serious problem and it could have really hurt Muhammad. So expecting Sahaba to stop Muhammad from riding animals is bizarre given their ignorance a, about epilepsy and their reverence of the Prophet and the phenomenon of revelation. When Muhammad would be getting revelation, they they would be either gathering around or saying, oh my God, look at this. this the angel is here now. So anyways, uh, the camel heaviness hadith is indeed an example of a dangerous event had Muhammad fallen over or reacted in a negative manner. Now, another thing for you to understand that uh, not every time you ride a car, if you have epilepsy, you will have a seizure. If you have, let's say, a few instances of Muhammad having ridden a horse or a camel seizure-free, does not mean that it yeah, like he did not have epilepsy even though he had one incident on top of the camel with the with the same symptomology. Like it can still happen. It's not mutually exclusive. Uh, but anyways, 
let's go to the next one. Now we're going to come to the end of the camel thing. Uh, just to show you again how Farid maliciously edits the uh, the argument again and again and again. Uh, but let's watch what he says and what, versus what I say. Better. It's another indication that he suffered from epilepsy. And it's not an indication that he, the power of revelation made the camel fall because other people were there. And they didn't see. Didn't there wasn't any power affecting. So that's a good point, too, that if, if why is the weight just falling on top of Muhammad and the camel? Why is like nobody else getting affected there, too? Like it's like very specific. Like when you think about it, it doesn't make sense. So according to these geniuses, when the revelation comes down, everyone in the vicinity is supposed to be flattened by the revelation. That's what's supposed to happen. And that's why I feel compelled to refer to these guys as murtards. Every single point that's made against Islam is an amazing. Uh, uh, okay, so <laughs> so he's calling us murtards after what you just witnessed happened, and that's what I'm trying to tell you. At a certain point, it's like, yeah, this is way beyond his his. his he doesn't get it. <laughs> he's yeah. <laughs> It's it's something something else. But anyways, all that he, he's calling us mortards, and all he's done is lying, obfuscation, and whatnot. And don't worry, guys. I just saw the comments. We will get to his response videos, and you'll be again, unsurprisingly, find out that he lied again. Uh, I'll give you a quick a quick rundown for those interested. I mean, there's three four points he made in his his, his but I don't even call that a response video. It was like. An ad hominem mudslinging. Uh, he starts off by calling Abdullah Samir as what Andrew Tate, and then he says that the sources I'm showing are irrelevant, whereas actually I, he just doesn't understand the point. They are very relevant. I was not showing all of them. And then he also doesn't understand that the sources, the way the website is presented them, it's not that each of the books mentioned has the full narration. A lot of the times they'll combine different narrations snippets of different narrations from different books and present them as one and then list all the books they took them from in a list underneath and that's what happened and things like that uh, then he goes on about the doctor did they one which again he completely fumbles it doesn't understand he doesn't show the next slide uh and then he's still stuck on gelado dina tabari like guy gotta move on from that like we got so much better stuff going on here and you're still stuck on like a scholar's name um, come on it's been like what three four years but whatever if you you know i uh, will do an actual detailed breakdown of his video later on in part three of the of this series but for now we'll finish the slides we have anyways uh so farid said uh, uh that it doesn't make sense, and he stopped there. There, uh, I'm gonna show the end part again. It's another indication that he suffered from epilepsy, and it's not an indication that it's what's supposed to happen. And that's why I feel compelled to refer to these guys as like nobody else getting affected there too. Like it's like very specific. Like watch here. When you think about it, it doesn't make sense. So see how he stops. When you think about it, it doesn't make sense. He stops me right here. But what he doesn't show you is this part. So that's a good point too. That if if why is the weight just falling on top of Muhammad and the camel? Why is like nobody else getting affected there too? Like it's like very specific. Like when you think about it, it doesn't make sense, especially given the other variables that we just went over with fainting and all sorts of things. So as you clearly see, I'm saying something, and you'll cut me off mid sentence, and it'll make it seem like I said something else. And 
uh, I mean, guy, you gotta, you gotta get, you can't do this. Like this is literally how you don't do refutations because eventually, when you get called out, all your fans look like look stupid too, thinking that we were pushing this uh, this guy, and now he's gone from Ganguly to Fraudodin at this point. <laughs> yep. So that's that's. All right. Is there any questions or any any uh, any cool comments that I've missed? Because I haven't been looking at the. Uh, I don't have two screens these days. So yeah. So we just got a super chat from Dill Duckwood. Thank you, Dill. Uh, still waiting on Gondol's book to come out on the Appalachian <laughs> Prophet. I'll eventually get get around to it. There's a few things, but uh, yeah, I think the theory's gone through a good year of uh, back and forth criticism. So I've I have a good idea what people will come up with objections and yeah, there's uh, a <laughs> there's uh, there's not many many objections that will stand. Like there's a lot of uh, good evidence, but I will come back to it. I don't know if I'm gonna release it in a year, two years, three years. It might be an ebook with interactive videos. Because uh, sometimes it's it's the impact is more when you see it versus when you read about it. Uh, but anyways, yeah. Any any other questions? And thanks a lot for the uh, super chat, Daryl. Really appreciate it. So um, we should try to finish up now. We're getting a little bit long, two hours. Maybe we can continue. All right. Episode. Yeah. Yeah. We only have like five six slides left. So let's. Okay. See. Okay. I mean, we yeah. Let me see. Yeah, let's do these slides are interesting. All right, the leg got crushed. Was it a miracle or Farid just does not understand again? By the way, we actually do have an example of a companion that did feel the weight of the revelation, Zaid bin Thabit. Now, this hadith is also an extension of the hadith where the guy was sitting with his leg under Muhammad's leg and he thought he was going to get it crushed. He wasn't getting a crush from the burden of revelation. This hadith is sahih, and it shows you that he was seized by severe trembling. That is what caused that sensation. So imagine this. If you have a tonic, remember that stiff lady, their legs went stiff. Your leg is underneath, and somebody's legs go stiff. You're pushing down on them. It's going to create a sensation of weight. That's what was happening. There was no uh, weight. In fact, Muhammad was just seizing. That kills that narration. So another interesting thing you notice, have you noticed how Farid just zoomed in onto our faces and he actually didn't show you the side? Why? Because he's lying to you. He's hiding something because the slide shows something very important. Look at the original. Al-Kubra by As-Suyuti himself. Now, funnily enough, I am not doing this translation. This is another scholar and this is an Urdu book. Just to show you, I'll bring the Urdu versions too to show you that the scholars are doing their translations. Here it says in the bottom left, Zaid bin Sabit Suravayta in Unifirmaya came Nabi Kareem ki wahi likha karta tha jib aapar wahi nazil hoti to aapko shadid larza lahik ho jata aur abdar moti ki manand pasina namudar hota. Now, this hadith is also an extension of the hadith where the guy was sitting with his leg under Muhammad's leg and he thought he was going to get it crushed. He wasn't getting a crush from the burden of revelation. This hadith is sahih and it shows you that he was seized by severe trembling. That is what caused that sensation. So imagine this, if you have a tonic, remember that stiff lady, their legs went stiff. Your leg is underneath and somebody's legs go stiff. You're pushing down on them. It's going to create a sensation of weight. 
that's what was happening. There was no uh, weight. In fact, Muhammad was just seizing. That kills that narration as well. Let's go to the next slide. We so um, it doesn't say it in English, but basically the Hadith says that there was a like a big weight pressed on the companion and he felt yeah. his leg was going to break even, right? Yeah, you can pull the, uh, if you want, the actual full version, that smaller version of Sahih Muslim that occurred that Muslim like to use. But they aren't aware of the full Sahih version but what was causing, he was actually having a full-on convulsive fit causing that sensation. But now we know. So as you see, uh, uh, Farid didn't show you the narration itself and what we're talking about. And on the right side... Can you show that again? Oh, here we just, hmm? uh, just show again what he showed, yeah. Okay. Just open up, just open up the video. Oh. Just to By show. the way, we actually do have an example of a companion that did feel the weight of the revelation, Zaid bin Thabit. Now this hadith... Oh, okay, pause it. Yeah. Now go here. What he does? Yeah. Look, look. You can see it. He zooms in on this, so he doesn't yeah. need to show you this. Why? Because <laughs> okay, what, his whole objection. <laughs> oh, like what we're showing, right? Like, yeah. come on. watch what's gonna yeah. happen after a bit too. So in part three, that we're discussing this issue again, and to put all doubts aside, what I did was I put. The Bukhari Hadith next to two other versions of the same one that we're talking about. Okay. The long and the short. What Farid does, he never shows you this. He shows you partially this discussion. And then he projects this idea that we don't really discuss the authentic one properly. It's, it's weird. Look at this. We see Khasais al Kubra by Soyuti on the left in the Arabic. And you see the same phrase again. And on the top right part, you see an Urdu scholar translating it. And we'll get to his name in a little bit. But just to show you that this is not my uh, translations. These are actual scholars. And I'm going to read this in Urdu. Uh, he says, Hazrat Zaid se rivayat hai. Inhone farmaya ke jab Nabi Kareem sallallahu alayhi wa sallam ki wahi likha karta tha. Jab aapar wahi nazil hoti to aapko shadid larza lahik ho jata. اور آپ دار موتی کی مانند پسینہ آ جاتا پھر جب یہ کیفیت رفع ہو جاتی تو نبی کریم وہی لکھواتے بیسکلی دا ٹرانسلیشن از دیٹ آئی یوز ٹو رائٹ دا ریولیشن فار محمد وین دا وہی دا ریولیشن واز ڈسینڈنگ اپان ہم اینڈ دس از ایکسپلسٹ ان دی اردو لینگویج دیر از ویری فیو ورڈز اینڈ دس از دی موسٹ ایکسپلسٹ سنانیمس وے اف ڈسکرائبنگ این ایپلیپک سیجر شدید لرزہ لاحق ہو جاتا دا ورڈ لرزہ از لٹرلی دی ورڈ فار Convulsions. If you want to look it up, you can back translate it. It's almost synonymous with calling somebody epileptic. Uh, on the bottom right, I have shown the uh, full, full version of it in uh, Sahil Bukhari, just so you know that this actually has a longer version, which shows that the tie breaking is, uh, is nothing uh, anomalous or miraculous. So, as you can clearly see, there was layers to how we talked about and discussed the same hadith, but Farid will hide the information and completely just missed out the, when we discussed this in part three, where we're actually showing that. And then later on in this video, we'll go on to accuse us of not showing the real hadith. It's just, just bizarre. Uh, yeah, like if anything, he should be showing the slide, never mind the pictures of us talking. Yeah, yeah. And he but does the same relevant. thing. <laughs> in his new response video he just made, he does the same thing with Dede Kurkut. The point where he focuses on her faces again and he omits the slide on the right side because if the slide was there it would clearly explain our point in much more detail which would of course defeat his little lie <laughs> so he does this a lot
Now, what I was saying there, uh, when you're pushing down, right? I don't think Farid is understanding the point again. Notice in the tonic phase, what I'm trying to say is the person's body is being lifted up on his heels or lower legs and your head is like kind of just pushing up a little bit. So your whole body bit gets kind of put on two, two or three points, okay? And on top of that, your muscles are actually pushing down actively to push you up. Now, if your leg or your uh, leg is right next to him or under this and suddenly this person has this tonic phase for 20, 30 seconds, you will have that in a very strong sensation of sudden weight from the stiffening phase. Again, this uh, we did mention it and we did show, I believe, a video of, uh, of it as well. But I don't think Farid understands the point being made here. And also, this is not just the only explanation we're offering here. The other explanation, like we've already discussed, the dead weight effect, that could actually very well be the underlying cause of this as well. We just don't know enough from the narrations and the variability that was it actually a tonic-clonic seizure? This was a tonic phase. Was it a secondary generalization or not? Again, was it because the sensation of weight was perceived due to him fainting during this seizure, which also happens? We just cannot know for sure. But we have plausible explanations that fit the descriptions given in the Hadith way, way, way before then this actually being an angel coming and giving him revelation. This sounds more like a naturalistic event, just mis being misunderstood by the 7th century companions at that time. Uh, but anyways, so this, this point again has two, like I said, uh, dead weight effect and this sensation as well. All right. Now here is something very, very interesting. This is a hill Farid chose to die on, and you'll see how embarrassing this is for him. I'm going to play this. I never showed this before. I showed it in the Urdu version of the Epileptic Prophet and I think part three or part four, but I haven't shown this in the English version, and there's a reason. The sound of bees coming from the Prophet's mouth is one of the most precise descriptions. I held on to it. I didn't show it to you for a very specific reason, because I knew that the only retort of the apologist is going to be the the heaviness and the B sound. Let's see what it is. So on the left side here, you're going to see an epileptic patient making a groaning sound during a seizure while being unconscious. or And it's also later related to breathing anomalies that are known with epilepsy. Listen to it carefully, and then I'm going to play the B sound effect. And then we're going to see how completely out of his league for this. So, uh, I hope I'm just going to look at the comments that uh, this uh, you heard the, the the noise. It was like a motor sound, like a buzzing or hum. Now watch this. Listen to this sound effect.
So as you can see clearly, if you paid attention, you could hear it, that it is exactly uh, sounds like the B, or if you were having a modern person, it might be like, oh, it's like a like an engine, a low revving engine constantly going in a groaning sound. But when you put them side to side, the sound of that patient where he's making those groaning sounds are almost identical identical if not the same as a B sound effect you can see varying degrees of different bees but the fact that this is so 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 well described in such a precise description the sahaba it is absolutely impossible for multiple sahabas to be narrating hadith about muhammad when he would get a revelation would make sounds like bees this is what it is guys they could not have made this up there is absolutely no way you can, and we will, in part eight of the Epileptic Prophet series, which is going to be coming, we will be doing a statistical analysis and probabilities to see that, in fact, the symptoms that Muhammad has have like almost like a one in a million chance of him not having epilepsy. We'll get to that later, but this was not made up by this habit. It's too precise of a description to be the sound of buzzing bees, as uh, you see. Now, what you're going to see next is what Farid ends up doing uh, with this explanation. Uh, so when we were talking about this in the initial series, we showed you a wide variety of possible explanations. So we were like clattering three, bruxism, and humming, which could also occur in epileptic seizures, right? Now, another thing to remember is when you're talking about symptomologies and stuff like that, you're talking about these descriptions within a medical context or the context of that field, okay? So another analogy would be, if, uh, let's say, if you're talking about string theory to somebody, right? And you're talking about the vibration of strings and then somebody's like, oh, strings don't sound like this when they vibrate and just pull out a random YouTube video. You're going to realize quickly the guy talking about string theory is describing the vibration of string within a context the theory and this is something that Farid doesn't realize so let's watch what Farid does and you'll see he's completely in his own la la land right now part about the hadith of the bees and the sounds of the bees well it seems like Dr. Jalal al-Din isn't quite sure how to interpret that and he's provided multiple explanations for that hadith and now we come to buzzing of the bees Right, so this is the hadith which goes about when the revelation came to Muhammad, one could hear what sounded like the drone of bees before his face. So what was creating that sound? There's two options here, okay? Uh, a, it could be the clattering of his teeth, as we now know that his teeth did in fact clatter, which is just embarrassing. <laughs> I mean, yeah, when revelation comes to me, my teeth start clattering. Humming is a rare automatism occurring in partial seizures that has received little attention. Right. So this is one speculative answer that could explain what that sound was. Another thing is uh, that bruxism or teeth grinding. Now, if you go to the next, I'm going to what I at least try to do is I don't talk out of my ass. Yeah, I don't even need to respond to this. I'm just going to play some audio clips. Mm-hmm. 
What I at least try to do is I don't talk out of my ass. By the way, you know, if I was him, if I was in his position, I'd actually say, hey, I don't accept this hadith. Um, it sounds like a supernatural event. Um, it's something that conflicts with reality. So I'm just... So then he says, I'm just going to reject it. Uh, the goo. But... <laughs> As you can see, like this guy is 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 not getting the argument. He's lost in his uh, in his little own misinterpretation of what the point is being made, what is being said. He's very literal in his interpretation. Is pedantic uh, about that as well. Uh, uh, anyways, when you're talking about descriptions of symptoms within a medical context, they are to be understood within a certain range of expression. A person attuned to seeing patients with these symptoms will not take them as literally as Farid does. In fact, it is childish to do that and only shows your own ignorance. As Farid starts playing random sound clips, he thinks this B sound is too supernatural to have any explanation and exhumes this absurdly arrogant vibe telling me to reject the hadith. Little did he know, this is in fact a very precise description which could no way be forced by the Sahaba. This turns out to be an amazing piece of evidence for Muhammad's epilepsy. Uh, but as you can see that Farid, uh, he's completely in his own little bubble and he does not understand what is being said. <laughs> Anyways, I don't want you to listen to it again and again. Let's go to the next slide. Part about the hadith. All right. <clears throat> so, uh, we've had some very interesting stuff. Uh, again, I just want to remind you that the videos of patients, you just have, you have to be respectful. You can't uh, make fun of them, uh, call them names and stuff like this. It's just strictly for educational purposes alone and only that. Uh, but anyways, uh, let's watch what's up next here. Saying that to me. It's not actually the rock or the tree. He just heard a voice. He then just thinking, okay, there's nothing else. So I guess it has to be the rock or the tree. All right. So remember, guys, the first thing that we're supposed to do is look into the authenticity of the reports. And remember, you don't need to be a scholar in order to catch the problems in the chain. Look at this, for example. Hmm. Apparently, a scholar that we don't know said that this happened. And I mean, this isn't proof. It's not binding upon us because we don't know who this person even is. So there's no reason to waste any more time with this one. So as you can see, Farid is very arrogant, and the way he deals with the with these sources is like if it's if it's unknown, it's like out. It's this is not a nuanced approach. Like you know, we talked about Mursal Hadith, and in fact, many scholars would accept Hadith that were Mursal over Musnad sometimes. And there are like big scholars, and you can refer to part one of uh, the Takiya Farid response for a detailed thing. And the other thing he keeps point missing out on is even Muslim scholars themselves have pointed this out again and again, that if uh, hadith are being corroborated uh, with sahih hadith, then they're normally accepted. They don't just get thrown out like you're doing. This, this is just such a bad view to adopt. Uh, another thing is Farid will discard anything that does not fit his Wahhabi Salafi standard, even though the standard itself that he adheres to is, like I said, ahistorical. Okay? And a lot of the times 
because his position or his standard is so let's say so strict and he also wants us to abide by the same one it ends up uh the discourse that we end up having wouldn't make sense because we're just completely talking in different paradigms uh but anyways let's go forward uh so here's something interesting uh and this i think is a couple of the last few slides uh let's watch what farid says and here you'll realize that farid does not understand hallucinations uh simple complex uh auditory visual the same hallucinations can evolve through different and more complex one the initial ones might not reoccur again and some hallucinations only happen once and not again and so many different things but let's just go and listen to what he says and then he got so deluded he says i recognize the stone in mecca that was used to pay me salutations before the advent of my prop for the like come on guy very good dr jaladin i'm impressed i like that you're using an authentic hadith so the prophet peace be upon him is stating that it's a specific rock it's not something that's reoccurring you'd expect that with the constant seizures that are occurring to the prophet peace be upon him that he would be hearing rocks speaking to him all the time trees speaking to him all the time however no he's just saying there was a rock that used to greet me back then 13 15 20 years ago notice that rasulullah is speaking to jabir bin samura right so jabir bin samura was quite young this as the narration implies is occurring in medina so the prophet peace be upon him is telling jabir that around i don't know 15 or 20 years ago maybe even more one more time with age with the continuous seizures that are supposed to be occurring remember you have six thousand verses in the quran that's a lot of seizures you'd expect him to have a lot more auditory hallucinations so that's the first point the second point i'm going to get to after i let dr jaladin continue all right so that's a very uh interesting one he says uh he says that he has six thousand verses so there has to be a lot of seizures a not every seizure uh, corresponds to a single verse of the quran psychosis can induce uh, episodes where you still hear voices and stuff this was extensively explained to farid not once not twice i think three four times we had a dedicated section in the main epileptic prophet series you can refer to that for details now the idea that the farid gives is that uh, muhammad uh heard this rock talk to him and because he should be having seizures many of them why didn't he have the rocks or trees talk to him again later but again in fact they did uh as you see here, uh, when Muhammad's life later on progressed, he had multiple instances of hearing voices. In fact, uh, there is one here, uh, right here. Uh, in Sahih Bukhari, I asked Masu, who informed the Prophet about the jinns at night when they heard the Quran? He said, your father Abdullah informed me that a tree informed the Prophet about them. So the Prophet did, in fact, kept on hearing trees talking to him while at the same time talking with genies so yeah his hallucinations are evolving uh, more and more complex this point is yeah, so but, terrible yeah i know but the thing is it's one specific tree man you get atheists gotta get it right <laughs> this one is not okay sure <laughs> i mean one this is three one specific rock one specific meal that he ate <laughs> uh 
But anyways, and then uh, let's see what is up here. Uh, for hearing voices later on in his life, once the prophet went through the graveyard and he heard the voices of two humans that were being tortured in their graves. Sure, that's normal. Uh, the, a deputation of jinn came to the prophet and said, so he's talking to genies. I mean, that doesn't constitute as hearing voices, right? No, I don't know. Uh, there's this one. Once Once the prophet went out after sunset and heard a dreadful voice and said the Jews are being punished in their graves. Okay. Um, <laughs> and then on the right side here is from Muslim Ahmed. It's from the slides. Here it says, uh, the prophet himself says, I see a light and I hear a voice and I'm afraid that there may be some jinn possession in me. So Muhammad had varying degrees of constantly evolving hallucinations of both uh, auditory and visual and I don't understand what Farid's point is here uh, so I think what's happening is Farid does not understand what hallucinations are what they entail I mean he can easily one I would appreciate and uh, encourage him to read hallucinations by Dr. Oliver Sacks that's a very good introductory book to this phenomenon but anyways hallucinations they can happen once they can repeat or develop into more complex forms as the person's psychosis develops this is clearly indicated throughout muhammad's life with his delusions and hallucinations worsening from simple sounds of rocks and stones to full-on hanging out with genies the screenshots attached show varying degrees of hearing voices for more refer to the delusion section of the epileptic prophet series which Farid omitted and due to his ignorance misses the point completely Muhammad had tons of auditory hallucinations. What about all the innumerable Gabriel visitations where he would see a man and or he would hear a voice after the ringing bells uh, alongside the visual ones? He truly doesn't get the point he's making here. Uh, uh, you can't single out why is he not talking to trees and rocks again. In fact, it, you, he keeps talking to all sorts of other things that are more invisible and more absurd. All right, another, I think this is the last last point we're making, and then we're just going to show some bonus slides, and we're going to call it a day. And I think let's do this last one, and let's call it a day. Onwards. And this is where it gets even more than on the right side. We see this from Surah bin Ishaq, Surah bin Kasir, sorry. And when he was returning back home, every tree and rock he passed by greeted him. So he went back to his family in good spirits. No, the guy isn't having rocks and trees tell him this. He's just hearing voices, his own brain's telling him this, and he's confabulating, thinking that the rocks are talking to him, thinking that the trees are talking to him. And this is what I'm trying to say. Put yourself in the shoes of Muhammad and think if you're walking alone and suddenly you start hearing voices talking to you, saying, peace be upon you. What would it take for you to think that, no, this actually the trees saying that or the rocks saying that? Yeah, yeah. What you see in the same chapter, Dr. Jadin is ignoring a report in which Ali says that he was hearing the trees and stones saying salam. So why didn't you read this report, Ya Doctor? Is it because you didn't want us to assume that Ali also had that pull up? So uh, this guy is, is a complete genius. Like we said earlier that... Uh, in light with the honest report that he wasn't present there or he was just too young and how you do history you don't just take any and every uh person testimony you have to analyze it like so what's going on here muhammad starting getting his revelations in 610 a.d 
started hearing these voices a year or so before the first revelation. So let's say 608 to 610 is a good range to put. If Muhammad himself is questioning his sanity while sharing these voices all the time, we went through this extensively in part one of the epileptic prophet. Uh, you don't override that with a testimony of a child who is barely 10 years old. Yes, when this whole shebang was happening, Ali, when he was hearing these sounds and stuff, he's supposed to be 8 to 10 years of age. And that is also keeping in mind that in the past well, five, six years, perhaps, of his life, he's also had been living in Muhammad's household for many years. Uh, so he grew up with Muhammad. So an 8 to 9-year-old boy saying... Yeah, Muhammad is my dad or, or my uncle keeps saying that, you know, sorry, his cousin, that I hear voices and I'm going insane. Well, I went there one day with him and I'm like a nine-year-old guy. Yeah, I, I heard him too. Uh, doesn't add up uh, in terms of how you do uh, the analysis. Uh, you don't override that with the testimony of a child who's barely 10 years old. There are certain things that require common sense more than faith, but it clearly lacks the former refer to the game of miracle slides as well and we're talking about he'll go on after the sahabas going on about miracles and in this video he extends it to that argument which we've already addressed yeah and just to kind of nail this home just to make it a little bit more clear guys like he just presents this at face value and gondol went back and looked up when this happened and the age of ali which is now we're seeing that ali was like a kid Right. So he's basically saying this little kid, right, said that he also heard the rocks talking. I mean, come on. <laughs> like, that's the level of argument that Felita is coming with. Like, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. He, didn't he didn't expect that this level of analysis. That's the problem here. He didn't expect us to. Really well, I can I can go it. even deeper. But the point is, at a certain point, the there's just so many lies that it's hard for me and frustrating for me to just sit here and yeah. not pull my hair out when I have to try to explain <laughs> to you these simple, simple lies. After a point, it's just, I can't deal with it. Yeah. Too. And you know what? I'm not even saying like, I'm not perfect. I make mistakes too. I'm a human too. Like, okay, if I make 450 slides almost, right? Okay. Farid engaged in his whole like series. If I'm being generous, like 30 slides and that too, you've seen what kind of engagement he did. Okay, take those 30 slides out. I'm, I'm wrong on those 30 slides. We still have statistically most of the evidence and most of the main points of basically every argument that was made still intact and mostly valid. So if you want me to admit something, well, then here, like, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an olive branch as if you admit that you lied quite a lot. And, you know, if you got to be fair like that, yeah, let's, let's play that game. But again, I don't think he's going to do that. But anyway, so these are some few bonus slides. There are not no videos or anything, just a couple of things I wanted to show you guys. So a common question throughout this whole uh, series and uh, this theory is about the epileptic prophet is we're basing the diagnosis or the probable diagnosis on witness testimony based on the hadith narrations surrounding Muhammad. Now, uh, people have conjured up this misconception uh, somehow that epilepsy can only be diagnosed through MRIs or something. And this is a modern misconception that I find in some of the viewers' eyes. Uh, in fact, the MRI machines and these kind of things are fairly recent inventions 
And even now to this day, most of the diagnosis of epilepsy uh, is done based on, like it says here, uh, relies largely on descriptions by a witness. And even in this paper, epilepsy is primarily a clinical diagnosis that depends on the patient's account, importantly, and an accurate witness description. Because Usually you can't predict seizures all the time. And if a seizure does happen, the doctor isn't there. You're not going to have a seizure inside an MRI machine or necessarily when you're hooked up to an EEG machine. So generally you can make diagnosis based off of testimonies if they're reliable enough. And if Muslims do say they can be relied upon to a certain extent, then yeah, Muhammad's case is not all that far-fetched. But I just wanted to point this out. Uh, that there is a lot of nuance to this as well. It's not just that you need MRI, you need that, and that we're just talking just from a historical perspective. There is a little bit to it that, yes, uh, this is a valid form of approaching the, the idea as well, like clinical basis. Uh, another interesting slide I found, a crazy description of Muhammad's seizures. That's just this book of Walatariq. And, you know, they're talking about some stuff. So here... It starts over here. Muhammad was praying, and after praying, saying, he says he was seized by the pangs of revelations. Here, uh, he fainted and closed his eyes. What the shun and his body convulsed, uh, shook, and he shook and profuse sweat poured from his face and body. He staggered. So Abu Bakr helped him to lie down. He heard a noise like the noise of bees in his head. He covered his face as he was unable to look at him in the state. When it left him and was free from the grip of revelation, he removed the covering from his face and wiped his sweat with his hand. He rose sluggishly and rarely, so he propped his back against the wall. Uh, that's just another, this is just a bonus. This isn't really related to the series or his lies. Just additionally, just for you guys, that there are some very interesting write-ups that are very, very, very explicit in terms of uh, how to look like an epileptic seizure. And I think that is all for the presentation today. So far, we're going to have a part three. I'm going to add a lot more slides. I have some slides ready in another different section. Obviously, I don't want to show them all to you guys. You know, got to keep some some handy. Uh, how would I have uh, pulled off the bee buzzing sound had I shown this a year ago? <laughs> but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get into it uh, more some other time. It was a nice uh, session here. I hope you guys learned a lot. I hope this is a lesson to everybody that uh, how this discourse can evolve into meaningful back and forth. But this is a good example of how it's being hindered by the willful lies of the other side and misrepresentations and straw manning and whatnot. Uh, but that's Absolutely. it for me. Yeah, it's been a great show. Thank you, Abdul Gandal, for all of your hard work on this. And I don't know if you guys noticed some of those like points were like amazing. This was a great analysis, great discussion. You know, we were able to make light of some of, you know, kind of laugh about some of the things because frankly speaking, they need to be laughed at. Some of the points were that bad. It was just like, it was worth laughing at them. So anyways, I hope you guys uh, enjoyed the show and uh, it's been a long one, but thanks for waiting and um, we'll see you again soon. Uh, it's over now from my side, science half is. Bye, everyone.